Welcome to Cinema Joes, the podcast where three average Joes discuss the significant topics in movie culture. My name is Justin Mancini. I am one of your co-hosts here, and I am very happy to have with me my other co-host. He is the podcast editor for thepopbreak.com, as well as one of the co-hosts of the TV Break podcast, Alex Marcus. Hello, Alex. Hey, Justin. How's it going? Going pretty well. And unfortunately, we don't have our other co-host, uh... Noah France, uh, who, of course, is one of my co-hosts on the Pot on the Rooftops podcast. Uh, but we do have in his stead a very special guest, a first-time guest for us, actually. He is the creator of MarvelGuides.com, Matt Farley. Hi, Matt. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, I didn't. I don't think I mentioned this before, but not only am I first-time guest on the show, this is my first podcast appearance ever, so hopefully you guys don't regret oh, this. Oh, <laughs> I was not aware of that. Okay. <laughs> Yes, but podcasting is very special to your heart, right, Matt? It is. I, I love podcasts, um, listen to a lot of them, so I have experience on that end of things. Um, and I am I am in settings like this for work all the time, just not talking about moving, movies and cool things like that, so I'm excited. Well, we're very happy to have you, Matt. And um, we're going to start, uh, well, I should say, what we are what we usually do in this podcast, <laughs> first of all, which is typically we discuss a recent movie release and then a larger topic related to that movie. Um, this time we're actually going to be giving you a double review. There are two pretty high-profile movies out now. Uh, one has made much more money at the box office, <laughs> but um, both, I think, are definitely um, pretty major film releases in the year anyway uh they are spider-man no way home we'll be discussing that film which i feel like everybody in the planet has seen by now and we'll also be discussing the matrix resurrections the long-awaited sequel to the matrix trilogy uh from lana wachowski so we are very happy to get into all of that but before we do any of that we will be starting off as we usually do with our full disclosure segment this is where we discuss recent films or television or anything else that we've been watching recently that we would like to recommend. Um, Why don't we start with you, Alex? What's been good for you recently? Sure. So it's been the end of the year, which means that it's been major crunch time for me to try to get all of the movies in uh, so I could put out my uh, my top 20 films of the year uh, letterbox list, which I know you all have been very excited to to see. Um, <laughs> and, and by the time of this recording, it's been published. So I'm short a couple of movies. There's about nine movies that I haven't seen that are just not accessible yet. Most of them are independent releases that I'm sure will will uh, shift my list a little bit between now and Oscar time. But yeah, I, I've been catching up with so many really cool um, and interesting things. A couple of movies that kind of, you know, were, didn't live up to my expectations, but one movie that totally blew my expectations out of the water. And that is a movie uh, directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, her first uh, feature, which is just kind of shocking when you see this film, how what an amazing command she has of the camera and of the tone and, and of the actors. It's a movie that currently streaming on Netflix called The Lost Daughter, which is uh, starring um, 
Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley and Dakota Johnson, among many, many others. My, part of my experience of watching this movie was every five minutes being like, wait, that person's in this too? I love them. Just like every every five minutes for the first hour of the movie. Um, and yeah, it's based on an Alana Fer, uh, Elena Ferrante novel. Uh, she wrote the Neapolitan novels that were huge about a decade ago and that have been adapted into a, at a pretty successful HBO um, Italian drama that I really love and is very close to my heart. And so that was one of the reasons why I was so excited to see this. And it's just excellent. It's just so great. I almost don't want to talk too much about what the movie is because part of uh, the mystery of it unfolding is sort of what makes it so exciting. It's not exactly a, a mystery film. It's not like a whodunit, but it does have a pretty shocking um, opening scene and then kind of you go from there. And it's just so like careful about how it explores the interior life of the lead performer, uh, Olivia Coleman, uh, who is a very idiosyncratic character uh, and always makes the decision that um, you don't expect. Uh, and yeah, it, it it is just incredible. It's, it's my favorite film of the year, I will say, um, which I wasn't expecting because I've seen a couple of movies that I really liked a lot and it had steep competition. But I really can't wait, Justin, for you to watch this. And I, and I can't, and I have a very strong feeling we're going to be talking about it a lot on our uh best of the year episodes that we do next month um but yeah this so i'll save it for that but yeah this is a great movie everyone should really check it out be warned there are a number of scenes with children being extremely annoying and if that's a trigger for you i totally understand um but it's really worth your time everyone should, should check it out if you'd like deep character study films which you guys know i do very much so uh you're gonna love this and it's on netflix so you can watch it whenever you want yeah, I'm I'm very excited to see it, uh, you know, at some point. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I've, I've purposely avoided really learning anything about the movie. And I really only have like a few images from the film to give me any idea of what the film's about. And I kind of want to keep it that way until I see it. Um, so I'm really just interested to see kind of what the movie's about, let alone, you know, see how good it is. Um, it's funny when you just mentioned like the, the warning about, you, you started to say like children, I'm like, wait, is like children in peril? Like that's what I thought that where that <laughs> sentence is going. And then you said children that are annoying. I'm like, oh, that makes sense too. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited to see this. I, I know it's, it's already showing up on a lot of critics, um, best of the year list. So it's definitely one of my more anticipated films and, um, yeah, just, really can't wait to see all those people that you mentioned in a movie so um yeah definitely looking forward to it are you yeah. familiar with this movie at all matt no i this is actually the first time i'm really hearing about it so i you've definitely piqued my interest oh, it's so great it's like especially if you like kind of like thorny character studies about difficult women which is something i really enjoy <laughs> but not everybody <laughs> does you'll really like this movie yeah, can't it's, it's honestly it's it's hard for me to believe that I'm saying this, but J I really think this is Olivia Coleman's best dramatic performance that I've seen her give. And that's like saying something because wow. she's done a number of really tremendous roles over the last few years. So not to yeah. mention Broadchurch uh, about a decade ago. It's been so wonderful to see this actress that I first remember discovering in like early aughts, you know, British TV comedies just turn into like this, you know oscar nominated and winning actress at this point 
Um, and uh, it's like I always knew she was capable of it. And to see her fulfill that is just really gratifying. Yeah. And again, I don't want to ruin too much, but I will tell you that Jesse Buckley plays a younger version of her of Olivia Coleman in flashbacks, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily something that you would expect just by like looking at them. But she does such an excellent job of capturing um, some of the very idiosyncratic ways that Olivia Coleman exists in the world. Um, and yeah. she just really feels like a genuine younger version of her, which I think is very impressive. Well, yeah, and that's another thing I've been I've been convinced that Jesse Buckley can do like really like excellent impressions of or, you know, embodiments of other people. Just having seen her do a dead on Pauline Kale in <laughs> I'm thinking of ending things, uh, yeah. regardless of what you think about that movie. Um, that's definitely, I think, one of the highlights. And uh, so, yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that she can also do Olivia Coleman really well. Okay, so let's go to you next. Uh, our guest, Matt, what has been good for you recently? A lot. Uh, <laughs> the thing with me is I, I am really bad at keeping up on recent releases other than, you know, some of the big ones we're obviously going to be talking about today. So I, I've fallen down. I can recommend a lot of things. They're not. They're mostly not going to be things that came out this year. Um, I, I fell down two rabbit holes recently. One is uh, the Blank Check podcast. So I've been going through pretty much that entire podcast and, and watching all the movies along along with them to fill in oh, a lot nice. of a lot of gaps that I had in my kind of film knowledge. You know, I've there's been so many movies, even by like Steven Spielberg, that I never saw, um, and then a lot of you know more uh, obscure ones as well. And then also. I've I've become semi addicted to buying Criterion Collection Blu-rays recently, so I'm I'm filling in a lot of my collection there. So I've been having a great year, really discovering a lot of uh, both kind of obscure and classic films that I've heard a lot about always, but never actually sat down and watched. Um, so I mean everything from you know Repo Man, Videodrome, Stalker, you know all all sorts of things like that. Um, so I've just been like having a great time with that, but it's it's caused me to kind of miss out on a lot of the recent releases this year. So I'm really gonna have to catch up uh, to a lot of the recommendations that people are are giving out right now. Is there anything, um, any particular movie in I guess like in the blank check? Um, episodes that you like just that you discovered for the first time that you were really grateful to have seen um yeah a really a really weird one um vanilla sky um <laughs> oh I, yes it's like uh, yeah I, I, it's cameron crow tom cruise it's it's so weird there's in a lot of ways it's it's not a great movie but it just does so many weird things it's almost like at times feels like a david lynch movie by way of cameron crow and it's it's just it really surprised me because I had nothing, no knowledge about it other than just the poster of like Tom Cruise standing in front of some clouds. So I thought it was some, you know, really just kind of average romantic comedy or something like that. And within 10 oh, minutes, gosh. I'm like, what is what is going on? And I was just like on a ride the whole time. And it's I watched it like six months ago and I like think about it like every week so that's the one surprisingly enough that has stuck with me um it's not going to be one that everyone loves but it's it's definitely one worth watching I think I love that movie Cameron Diaz is giving an all-time great Cameron Diaz performance yeah (laughs) um and then another one actually Cameron Diaz as well that I'd seen before but I watched recently again and just reminded how much I loved it uh being John Malkovich um I just that it that's definitely got to be one of my my favorite movies of all time really the more i watch that um 
I, I was really happy to rediscover that recently because I hadn't seen it in about 10 years. Yeah, we actually we did an episode where we talked about films we've been watching in quarantine and we talked about like what are older films that we really loved. And that was like that was mine, which I'd actually re I was I'd actually rewatched it because the first time I just was not in the right headspace, I guess. And then the uh-huh. second time that I saw it during the quarantine, it like just made it just was was great. And it was just a wonderful experience. And uh, the limitless imagination of it, I think, was just what really captivated me. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm definitely a big fan of that one as well. Yeah, me too. I'm a huge Charlie Kaufman fan. I've seen almost all of his movies and except for Anomalisa. I just that movie just looks like depression for two hours and I just couldn't bring myself to see it. But um, otherwise, I'm a huge fan of his. And that is definitely uh, like the iconic one of his films. It's probably not my favorite. Um, I like Eternal Sunshine a bit more in adaptation. But yeah, it's a great it's a great, great film. Have you seen his other movies? Uh, most of them. I, ha- I have not seen Anomalisa either, um, hmm. for probably the same reason that you mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say that one. Um, I-, I think there's there's a key character in Anomalisa, which I think makes the film more than just it feels like that movie for a lot of it. And then Jennifer Jason Lee's character starts to make more sense and it becomes something else. And that's part of why I love that one. Yeah, Kaufman's definitely... He's definitely one of those guys who was so well known as a screenwriter before he was, you know, before he was a director to the point where it was almost like, you know, he was getting the same amount of billing as the director, <laughs> which is pretty that <laughs> doesn't happen for many screenwriters. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he might be coming up a little bit later in our in our episode uh, by oh. me. So. All right. Well, we'll look forward to that then. I'm really interested <laughs> to hear how that figures into everything. But um, before we do, I'll just uh, end with my pick. Uh, and I wanted to go with something that maybe it was a little bit off the beaten path. I have been watching some other releases, which I've enjoyed as well. But I'm going to recommend a movie from director, Swedish director Roy Anderson. It's a film called About Endlessness. Have either of you heard of this movie? I've heard of it. I haven't seen it yet, though. I, I have not. I've, I know it's popping up on some year-end list. I've never seen any of his films. It seems like something that I would enjoy, but it just there's something that's like slightly intimidating or uh, about it that I just haven't gotten, haven't just like dived in. But I think I probably will have to sooner or later. Yeah, it's a he is a he is a very particular niche, um, and I would say that niche is probably not for everyone. I've seen his previous film, A Pigeon Sat on a Branch Reflecting on Existence. Say that ten times fast. and and this one is very much set up like that one and like some of his previous films where you're basically watching a bunch of uh little scenes little vignettes they're not some of them are related like there are some recurring characters but for the most part they pretty much stand on their own and there's kind of an overall sort of sense of tone and mood that that um is reflective of all of them by the end of it and this one is very much in line with that. Uh, the tableaus, that, that's kind of what I call them because a lot of them are marked by these very impeccable compositions and not a ton of movement, usually very like still figures. And it's almost like they're sort of locked in their frame. Um, the one thing I really like about this one is that you get the sense every every new scene that these people have always existed and that they will continue to exist even as, you know, you go into a new scene. Um, I think that the title really becomes more and more evident as you watch a lot of these scenes unfold. 
one scene in particular there's a couple of of scenes in here that really stand out to me one that i want to highlight is is a pretty simple one um and it's basically just a man and a woman visiting the grave of their son and there's something about the starkness and the emptiness of this graveyard where they really are the only human beings like in sight um there's a sort of ritual that they have just the very the deliberateness with which the father picks up like a watering can and fills it up and then trudges back to the grave and waters these very meager flowers that are in front of the grave um there's just something about the simplicity of that and this the real the real way in which silence just like threatens to overwhelm everything and the way that this couple have kind of made this ritual to give meaning to this very significant loss uh as a way to i think counter that silence and it really does a lot of these scenes i think especially are very much about silence and about how do we fill that uh, i would say for anyone who's going to see this uh just be warned in addition to the existential despair there <laughs> there are some uh there is occasionally some violence that can be disturbing there's one scene in this one um which is very powerful but let's just say involves the aftermath of uh i guess what you would call an honor killing which is very disturbing um, so I would warn people who are going to see it. This isn't just about despair of existence, but also about like very real violence and and uh, adversity that exists in our world. So I would just want to warn people about that. But I think this is this is the kind of thing if you're not on board within like the first few scenes, you may want to abandon ship because I'm not quite sure that it ever becomes something different. But uh, the scenes themselves are very powerful and because not a ton is happening in terms of movement in the scenes, it really does force you to focus in on what's happening. And um, I found it very gratifying. Uh, I don't know if I like it as much as the previous one. That one I think had maybe a little more scale to it and a little more diversity of, of um, different tones and um, subject matter and that sort of thing. But I think this one is definitely a worthy addition to his filmography, at least from what I've seen. Um, so I would encourage it for, for people who are, you know, maybe looking for something a little bit different, a little bit off the beaten path. I think this is definitely uh, something that uh, you should check out. But yeah. Where did so you I, see it? Um, I saw this. I believe it was on Hulu. Oh, OK. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, it's it's being I think I've seen it on like 20. It's it's a 2021 film in the sense that it was released, like had a full release in the United States in that year. It did originally have festival releases uh, pre pandemic, actually, in 2019. Um, I wow. imagine that the pandemic was probably why it wasn't didn't get wider release until 2021. Um, but yeah, so it's it's probably it's it's speaking to a world before the pandemic, which is really fascinating, given I, I'm sure that I would really like to see what a pandemic version of this would look like, uh, although I'm not sure if Anderson is really up for making more films at this point. He is he is an older gentleman at this point. So um, but he definitely strikes me as someone who could you know, really, um, really do something interesting <laughs> given it. And this one definitely, I think, especially in a world where we know what quarantine means, I think these scenes maybe hit hard, um, hit harder as a result. I found, I found that a number of things hit harder uh, in the last year than we used to. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Well, uh, let's talk about something that I think uh, will be very close to all of our hearts uh, <laughs> in terms of 
the subject matter. Um, this is, of course, Spider-Man No Way Home, the new film from John Watts, uh, the newest film in the still-connected Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, and it's the latest Spider-Man film. And uh, I'm really just kind of interested to hear like what you guys thought in general about this. And I wanted to start with you, Matt, because I know that you're kind of our, our Marvel expert on this podcast. How did you feel about the movie? And I guess, how did it compare with your experience with the character and, and maybe the, the MCU at large? Sure. Um, I mean, Spider-Man is really important and special to me. That character is really kind of was my entry into just, you know, nerd culture and comic books and even movies and things like that. When I was a kid, um, I remember getting my first Spider-Man comic and that was one of the earliest, you know, brushes I had with anything related to superheroes or these types of stories or science fiction. But I'm I'm also not someone who's like, Spider-Man needs to be, you know, exactly the way I remember it because I've consumed so many Spider-Man comics and movies and TV shows and video games that I have kind of a bird's eye view where I realize Spider-Man can be so many things to so many different people. And as long as it's, you know, t- there's a story to be told and it's done in a, in a good way, that's that's all you need because there's so many iterations and versions of the character. So I loved the MCU Spider-Man movies up until this point. Um, but I also recognize people's complaints that they didn't necessarily feel like traditional Spider-Man stories because there was so much baggage tied on to I don't even want to say baggage, but so much kind of added on in terms of, you know, tying his origin to Iron Man and and bringing in all these other elements of the MCU, which I always thought they did in a really nice way. There's so many little details, especially in Homecoming, where you have a villain like Vulture that is kind of born out of all these past movies in a way that really makes a lot of sense for what that character is and for also the MCU. Um, And then for this movie, which I loved, I thought it was... um, a compromise in a way, but not in a bad way, kind of blending what the traditional Spider-Man story was and also this new MCU iteration and giving us the best of both worlds to kind of harken back and recognize really what the core of that character was about, bringing in a lot of the classic elements, but also don't kind of um, ignore this new iteration that we've built up through these last several appearances in the MCU. So I guess my high level thoughts were I have, you know, of course, nitpicks with the movie, but I I was really worried about this movie before it came out just because there's so many things I thought could have gone wrong from any number of angles. Um, And it it ended up being I don't think it's the best MCU movie for me. I've seen a lot of people say it's their favorite Marvel movie, but I do think it is the best Spider-Man movie and and one of the the better MCU movies. So. I'll, just, I'll leave it there for now, just kind of my top level thoughts on the movie and, and the character in general. Yeah, I had a similar experience with it. I kind of went into this, you know, hearing a lot of good things. And I always I'm always fearful anytime something is very hyped and is very much in um, the cultural consciousness. <laughs> and because I'm always afraid I'm like, well, maybe it's like not going to live up to this sort of abstract notion that I've gleaned from you know just little bits and pieces i've heard from people who have seen it and loved it um and i would say maybe like the first act or so i was kind of like okay where is this going this seems like a lot it's throwing a lot of stuff at us and by the end i was just very impressed by how emotionally satisfying it all was i really liked that it um 
was a film about the choices that we make and about having to live with the consequences of those choices, even when those choices are made in good faith and with the best of intentions. Um, I like that it's um, very much about camaraderie between, you know, not just the different Spider-Man, but between him and all the relationships that he's, you know, cultivated up to this point. Um, and I think just overall, it it felt like a great summation of this sort of mini trilogy of Spider-Man movies. It felt like the one that has tested him the most. And yet it also felt like he's still a kid. He's still trying to figure things out. And I think it just the way it brought together all those things made it something that I just found very resonant and and um, very satisfying. And I was, yeah, I was very happy to see the way they, they went with it. And I was glad that even with all the different things that it's bringing in, it still managed to have a cohesion to it. Yeah, I I totally agree. I really enjoyed this movie. I think um, of our regular co-hosts, at least, uh, I'm definitely the one who's highest on this trilogy. Um, I'm a huge, huge fan of Spider-Man Homecoming. I think it's one of the best MCU films. Um, I probably like it more than almost anyone else. Um, (laughs) I also I also was a really big fan of Far From Home when it came out that had a lot of um, detractors. uh, And I will say I rewatched that one last night uh, to prepare for this episode. And my enthusiasm for that movie did sour a little bit. It's it's definitely not I'm not quite as high on it as I used to be. But I think I'm just just in love with. Well, I'm definitely in love with Tom Holland. We all know that. Um, But I'm in love with his portrayal of Peter Parker. I love the way that he gets to play this like small fish in a big pond. I always think it's very funny that people uh, like really like come after these films for being against like for for being against the idea of like, oh, why can't he just be Spider-Man? Why does he always have to be like laden with all of this other stuff? Why is it all about like Iron Man and the MCU and all this? And it's like everybody wanted that. That's what they wanted. They said, why do you Sony stop making Marvel movies? We want Marvel to make Marvel movies. We want him to be in the MCU. Then they put him in the MCU and then people are like, oh, why is it all about him being in the MCU? It should be about him being a solo hero. And it's like, well, what do you guys want? You know, so I think that the franchise as a whole has really had a good balance in that regard where he feels like he's part of this world as matt said but is is creating his own little corner of it and i think this is kind of the encapsulation of of that journey it really does feel at the end of this final film that we have seen a three uh episode uh origin story for him as a character and i think that that's very interesting to land on but um yeah most of all I'm just really impressed by the level of difficulty that went into making this movie work and that it mm-hmm. somehow did. Um, it's it's definitely, it's not my favorite Spider-Man movie. It's it's not my favorite MCU movie, but I, am, I really enjoyed it. I've seen it twice now. Um, it made me cry a lot the first time that I watched <laughs> it. <laughs> and, um, and I just, it just could have been so bad. You know, like there's so many balls that they're throwing up in the air and I'm just, and we'll get into it in more detail, but I'm just so impressed with how well they were able to execute on everything and how they had so many different pieces to play with and they utilized all of them exactly the right way to exactly the right effect. Um, And that really could have gone a, a much worse direction. It's just so easy to see how they could have fumbled the ball and, 
I think that Marvel oftentimes gets credit for me uh, for that like level of difficulty sort of question where it's like the films are entertaining and it's easy to say like, oh, well, you know, they're fun, they're blockbuster movies, whatever. But it's like when you watch other studios try to do something like this and just fumble it so, so badly, it really reminds you that like this is actually really difficult and they're really good at the kind of problem solving element of storytelling. And yeah, there is something a little bit inartful about that at times, but I think that they they always double down on the emotion and they focus on their characters first and don't let the plot overwhelm them. And I think that's why a film like No Way Home really works. Yeah, there have been a lot of other movies like this that have attempted to do a lot less and fumbled it much more. So I agree, it's really impressive when they continue to put more and more on their plate and somehow the quality remains at least consistent, if not improves. I mean, I think a lot of people have kind of rosy pictures of the beginnings of the MCU of Iron Man and Phase One, and and they're at the point, maybe it's just fatigue, where they're like, oh, Marvel movies are all the same, I'm sick of this, um, these are not as good anymore. But really, if you stack them up against each other, um, this movie, and I think a lot of Phase Four, will hold up a lot better than some of the earlier ones, even 10, 20 years from now. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you think about the level of difficulty that they had trying to make an Iron Man 2, right, in 2010, where it was like, well, we had this movie, Iron Man, that hit so well and kind of unexpectedly because, like, it had no script. It was all kind of built on this star who whose star status was in question at the time. Um, and then they're like, OK, well, now we're going to launch a universe out of it. And they tried to put all of these Easter eggs. They tried to have, like, all these villains. They tried to do multiple, like, comic book arcs at the same time. And it was kind of a mess. And people were like, well, Robert Downey Jr. works and the movie made money because people like him. But I don't know about the future of this kind of franchise that we're looking at. Like, maybe this is going to be a disaster. And, like, compare that to what they had to do here in this movie where it's like, yeah, well, you know, we're going to have um, a villain from every single past Spider-Man movie. Most of them don't exist in this universe. We're going to have like uh, Dr. Strange uh, playing a prominent role. We're going to try to integrate like the tone and the kind of supporting cast of the first two films while also introducing like a dozen more characters and have give them arcs and give them story purpose and also have it all kind of build to this really important moment for our singular hero, even though there's going to be other hero versions of him in this film that are going to remind you of what you liked about them too um it's just kind of insane that it worked it should have been a disaster and it really really worked like i saw it in a in a sold out theater twice um i'm very unhappy to be in a sold out theater for a number of reasons as you could imagine but it was nice to see like that each time like people just love this movie it really really brings out so much enthusiasm uh for just like 20 years of Spider-Man movies. And it's just kind of crazy that they were able to just sort of sneak this in under the wire. Like, I mean, we knew that at a certain point, this is basically what the movie was going to be about. But it feels like, you know, we had like four or five years of buildup to Avengers Endgame. And then like we had like six months of buildup to, oh, we're going to do that, but for Spider-Man now. And that just seems like such a cynical approach to storytelling like oh we like sony wants their version of endgame that's going to be a disaster and they just pulled it off so well i think (laughs) yeah and i i think like one of the things going into this movie that i was afraid of um you know and um 
<laughs> probably still am when it comes to comic book movies especially is anytime there's going to be more than one villain <laughs> i'm always a little bit like oh boy how does that usually work out not very well you don't really get the kind of time to spend with each of them where it still feels satisfying i think you know i think spider-man 3 is a good example of that um and i think one of the ways that they solve it here is there's a kind of synergy to the villains here they're all kind of working toward a common goal um you know we're not like we still we have we also have if we've seen the other movies then we have some background with them already and we kind of understand where they're coming from if we don't then they give us just enough to kind of give us an example of like what they were kind of dealing with in that movie i think as someone who has not seen either of the andrew garfield spider-man films i thought they did a good job with that especially with uh with jamie fox's electro i thought that was really interesting to me um and it all feels like they're working towards something common and it, it feels like they're facing kind of one threat that is all these different pieces with maybe green goblin at the head of that and i thought that was a good way just like there was an efficiency to that it didn't it made it seem more manageable as a threat as opposed to facing multiple villains with different motives all kind of like following their own track and and ping-ponging between them it still felt there was still unity to their purpose um which i felt like really solved the this problem this problem that so many other films have faced of multiple villains and i thought they did a pretty good job with that i fully agree with that what you're saying but i also think what's impressive is is that Someone who hasn't seen this film might hear that and think, oh, well, so the big group of villains are just kind of acting as a block, right? And so they're all kind of like they're different characters, but they're all basically kind of the same. And it, but they really aren't. They, they somehow managed to give almost every single one of them like a different, like small arc that they have to go on throughout the film that kind of works in concert with each other and mirrors what's going on with Peter in a really good way. But you really feel these characters being differentiated and you feel like their motivations are differentiated, even if what they're looking for is, is mostly the same, which is either, well, and honestly, not even the same, right? Like Sandman wants to get home. Everyone else kind of wants to stay, right? So even within the group, there's a bit of a mix. And and I think that's just so impressive. It would be so easy for this film to just get overloaded by that or to give too much of that time to developing those characters and not enough time to the characters that we actually care about who, like, the story's supposed to be about, which is Peter and his friends. Mm-hmm. And I think that they they just get the balance so right. It's just watching it a second time, that was really what kind of spoke to me most. It's just, like, how did they pull off such a well-balanced screenplay given everything that was going on especially when you hear about like the like some of the reports coming into this film was that like they were rewriting uh big chunks of the screenplay like on set because of all of the production delays and it was supposed to be coming uh, uh after uh doctor strange 2 and now it's coming before doctor strange 2 and all this stuff so you're just like how did they pull this off? I just, it just seems insane that they pulled <laughs> well, this off. Yeah, that's another thing um, to touch on the wider MCU. I, I mean, I get in discussions with people all the time about, you know, how intricately they plan these things. And I was just reading an a interview with the writers where they said, you know, the events of Loki didn't really impact this at all. That was kind of just a coincidence. So everyone's, you know, assuming, okay, Loki opened up the multiverse to allow this to happen. And they're kind of saying, uh, this probably would have happened whether or not Loki... <laughs> was even a show or not, whether we needed that backstory of the multiverse. So it, it's so wild that these things can see, seem like they're all playing off each other. And 
And I bet they do more than they let on. But if you believe a lot of the interviews they give about this stuff, a lot of these things are just happy accidents. And like you said, the fact that this was supposed to come after Doctor Strange and they were able to, I mean, it remains to be seen how that, how that they pull that movie off. But if they're able to make it seem like that was always the plan for this to come first and this kind of feeds into the events of Doctor Strange, that is another level of just, um, you know, impressiveness that, that it's really hard to believe they don't have all of these things set in stone that are reliant on each other. And and frankly, they can't because when there are delays or, you know, casting issues, it can't be so interlocked that one thing breaking in one movie will mess up the entire chain. So they do need that flexibility to swap things around at the last minute. Yeah. And I mean, I think that like this conversation is the sort of thing that makes some film fans just cringe because they're just like, that's not what movies are supposed to be, right? It's like movies are supposed to be these like singular installments of like a auteur's vision. And I mean, you know, uh, based on what I just talked about in our full disclosure that I'm I'm all about that. I love that. But I also like that this like that they've carved out this other thing that exists that manages to have like heart and uh, and emotion and and characters that we care about in a really fun like interlocking world that can bounce off of each other and inform each other and but like can move and shift and change and it's just really it's just really impressive what they've built and I think it's I'm glad that not every movie is like this I'm glad that not every franchise is trying to do this anymore because they realize that like it's very difficult to try to pull that off but I'm also glad that this exists and I'm glad that it exists at the high level that it does yeah for sure I also I guess I wanted to ask you guys how you felt about um sort of the the just like the beginning of the film and the situation that you know the sort of catalyst for peter going to dr strange and asking him to um you know alter reality slightly (laughs) in order to in order to uh you know i guess in his mind save his friend's uh futures um yeah because there's a lot the, it's throwing at you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that the first act of this film is its weakest act. I think that it's what you're seeing in the first act is them trying to pivot from the film franchise that we've gotten for two installments where it's like, you know, kids in high school with their friends and like zany hijinks are happening. And like it's like teen hijinks and superhero hijinks like bouncing off each other and all that stuff, which I really love in Homecoming and and in Far From Home. And they like that's the world that this movie is starting in and it has to really kind of quickly pivot into the more serious story about like who Peter is and who he wants to be and as it's refracted through all of these different villains and ultimately these other Spider-Men um and I and I think that they kind of it's it's not that they do a bad job of making that pivot it's just a kind of a natural pivot to make and so I think that that's where things feel a little bit messier um, but it ultimately, by the time that you get out of that first act, you're in such a f- interesting place and a place that I don't think I expected to be in, um, in terms of it really being a, a question of morality and, and of, of what kind of person you want to be and, and who, uh, Peter is. And, and also just like, you know, by then you're really latching into some very strong, um, performances by people like Alfred Molina and Willem Dafoe, uh, that I ultimately don't mind that it, it was a little bit of a kind of L shape to get there, if that makes any sense that but matt i'm really curious to hear your thoughts on the first act 
Yeah, um, well, I really love the way it's shot in that first, like, 15 minutes where the camera's just following them around in, you know, his apartment. It feels really kind of claustrophobic and chaotic, and you start really feeling that anxiety of, you know, there's helicopters right outside his window, and his whole life is being invaded. It, I think that was necessary because, you know, secret identities have not really been a big thing in the MCU, um, as opposed to how they have been in the comic books, where it's much more of a factor. So you know, when you have Iron Man flippantly kind of revealing his identity at the end of the first movie, I think you needed that that first 15 minutes to sh- to actually add some stakes to it, because otherwise you're just thinking, who cares? You know, everyone knows everyone's identity in this world. But when you're thinking of a kid living with his aunt in the city and suddenly he like can't even get into his apartment, people are grabbing onto him, you know, they're like calling out, hey, that girl knows Spider-Man. I, I think it adds a lot of really kind of panic to the situation and you start feeling the weight of it um it kind of gets waved away the legal ramifications of it by by a familiar face that we can talk about um but then i i do like how the the kind of inciting incident is that his he realizes his friends um are not going to be able to get into college and live the lives they want to lead because usually in the comic books the problem with the secret identity is he's worried that, you know, a villain will target someone he loves, which is which is true here, too. But I think that's a unique element that they never really have touched on before to track how it might ruin or affect people's lives in other ways. Not just like a threat of violence from a bad guy, but it might actually affect them, you know, being able to get a job or something because they have an affiliation with someone who's um technically a criminal so i i I enjoyed that angle of it i thought that was a unique spin on it yeah i like that the like there's still stakes there but they also they're not like life or death there's still and and it also i think one of the things i i did really like about you know what i did really like about this first act and about the decisions he's made is that they do feel they feel like decisions that are made with the best of intentions and they're meant to fix like his like he's taking responsibility for, for, um, you know, for what he's done, even if that hasn't necessarily, you know, there's a lot of inadvertent things that have come out of that. Um, but at the same time, the decisions he's making still feel rash and not well considered. Uh, they feel like kind of knee jerk reactions, but they also feel understandable in the moment. And I think that's, that feels very much in line with the character that has been established thus far. And I, I, I like that, you know, he does get challenged by Doctor Strange about like, oh, couldn't you have done this simple thing that doesn't involve tearing apart the universe? He's like, (laughs) oh, yeah, I guess I could have. And it just it's such a great like little thing of just how something can feel like the end of the world in the moment um, and how clearly in hindsight things appear and how, you know, you know, things didn't have to be escalated to this to this level um in order to fix them but because of all the insanity and all the panic as you mentioned matt before it can feel like there there can only be one like radical option to to solving this so i, well, I thought and i, I and i also i also really like that it like it speaks to his youth still because it's just like mm-hmm. i do believe that like a like a, a 17 year old kid might not realize that that's something you're even allowed to do right that you could just call and try to talk to because that's like well that's <laughs> they're like now <laughs> they like they sent a letter i mean what do you mean like that's the, like i didn't know you could contest it what do you mean you know that like right. felt very <laughs> that felt very real for i feel like that would have been my reaction at, at 17 i would have been like no but the letter <laughs> came there's there's a person that i could talk to no that's not allowed it has a it's seal like, on it 
I should just rewrite the laws of reality. That seems like a much simpler solution. <laughs> and I mean, than having even, an awkward even conversation. If, <laughs> even if you might consider those ob- other options, you know, in the real world, if we had a friend who was a wizard who could do stuff like that, we would probably just maybe go to them first anyway, because it seems like the easiest option. Yeah, I really, yeah, I do like that aspect of it. And that whole sequence was really, I thought that it, that it worked really well. Like, uh, Benedict and uh, and Tom have really good chemistry together, I think. Um, and uh, and I'm glad that the movie was able to utilize it um, just the right amount, I think. You know, I really enjoyed their big fight sequence over the box MacGuffin thing that they have. Um, <laughs> I, I love that, like, Marvel managed to convince us that, like, you could, like, send a, a dozen interplanetary or interdimensional beings back to where they came from just by, like, pressing a button on a magic box. Like, that's great. I'm glad that we could just do that. <laughs> and, um, and, yeah, it was really fun. I was, like, I was, I saw this movie the second time with my nephew, who's nine, and the whole car, car ride uh, to the movie, he was telling me about how math is his favorite subject, and he was asking me to ask him these, like, multiplication questions to see if he could get them right. And then, like, he got to have this whole, like, uh, action sequence with his favorite superhero where, it, like, math was the was the superpower. And I thought that was really fun. Um, and, I'm ha- and I feel like that kind of is, like, a nice throwback to the point of some of these comic books originally, which is to, like, give, you know... Um, nerds and losers heroes <laughs> that remind them of them so not that my not that my nephew is a nerd or a loser at all he's very popular and he plays football but he also <laughs> likes math and so that's it was just nice for that <laughs> yes none of these things are mutually exclusive exactly <laughs> unless you're jamie fox in which case you can only not be a nerd if you switch other dimensions and suck up uh the other dimensions uh energy which turns you into a really cool guy <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I really I really enjoyed that. Speaking of Jamie Foxx, I think we should spend a little bit more time on the villains themselves. I'm curious how they worked for you guys, because I think that not every villain in this film is created equally. Um, but I think that the film, as we said, like calibrates how to use them pretty well. Like, for instance, like the movie knows that um, the lizard was not the most successful villain of the Spider-Man franchises. <laughs> And so he basically just gets like a couple of random lines of dialogue that actually are pretty funny, but they don't bother giving him an arc the way they try to give um, some of the other people arcs. But I'm really curious how the the villains um, individual performances works for you, because I have to say that Willem Dafoe just like blew the roof off of this movie. I thought that he was tremendous. I have a running list of like my favorite villains of the MCU. Actually, every villain of the MCU ranked because I'm a lunatic. And um, he just jumped straight to the top of that list because I think that he's just so tremendous. He's even... I rewatched all of the Spider-Man movie ahead of this movie just to like, you know, orient myself. And and he's so much better here than he is even in the first Spider-Man movie, which he is giving a pretty fun performance. But he's so much better here. There's like a true evil to his presentation it feels like he's kind of like taking his the lighthouse energy and bringing it to (laughs) norman osborne in a way that i really love (laughs) yeah i liked him a lot here and i think what was maybe it's been a while since i have seen the original um spider-man trilogy um but what i think was interesting here to me was how he functions as like a devil on the shoulder sort of figure like he's he's the kind of person like wants, but you know he wants, um, 
he wants Peter Parker to to lose it, to give in. Like it's it's he's always like pushing him to that edge. And I think that's that's really fascinating because it feels less like just someone who has his own goal in mind and more just like wants to see someone else, um, you know, you know, lose their soul, I guess. <laughs> and I think it was really I think that was a smart calculation on the part of the film. Um, I also really I liked, you know, of course, you know, surprised to no one Alfred Molina is fantastic in this as well. Um, oh, so good. But like one of the things I like about his performance and I was not expecting necessarily is how much like he is put in positions of powerlessness here and has to like basically throw these little tantrums. <laughs> and I just <laughs> think that's so fantastic given how the characters introduced here and and in, you know, the other movies as well. Um, and how he um you know even like his the whole thing of him try like thinking that he has peter beat by taking the nanotechnology away and not you know not assuming that uh there would still be a level of autonomy that peter would be able to have over it um i think like there's just something very um there's just something very fun about the way that he plays all that and how he can't quite deal with everything like doesn't want like the way he you know the way he just will snarl like i don't want to be fixed like it's just it's just <laughs> always fun um and yet all also like reveals this sort of um powerlessness and and impotence on his part and i just really loved that i loved that aspect particularly of his character yeah i, I have to say i think that that's the best um bluetooth pairing sequence in an action film and i really gotta <laughs> give them props for that yeah, um, I to get the nitpicks out of the way, I I probably would have just if I were rewriting this movie, probably just have done without Lizard and Sandman at all, at least until the end. I thought at the very end when you start to see some silhouettes of other villains coming through and a couple, there could be a pe- couple potential cameos there where maybe that sequence actually goes on a little longer, and then Lizard and Sandman and maybe some other people come through to kind of lead to like a bigger battle at the end. So I, I might have saved those guys for the very end. But otherwise, um, I liked all three of the main villains. I, I even liked Jamie Foxx and Amazing Spider-Man 2, even though it's not a great movie. I, I kind of liked what they were doing with him there. It, it kind of felt like the type of reimagining that the MCU might do on a villain, but just not executed as well. And I thought the the changes they made to him here were fun. I, I really liked a lot of his... Um, uh, comedic lines in this movie about you know you got to be careful where you fall i thought that was really funny um <laughs> and I, I i thought they really were able to spend good a good amount of time with each of them like you said give them each different motivations he just wanted kind of more power um or he liked the energy here he wanted to stay in this universe um i like that norman osborne was just more unhinged because i think part of it was he realized at least in his original universe, there was that Osborne side fighting too to say, you know, you have a son, you have a business, you know, you have a reputation, you're fighting for something. And in this universe, he he looked himself up and realized he does presumably Osborne doesn't exist in this universe, or if he does, he's not a, a wealthy businessman. So he figured, you know, I'm here, I have nothing to lose, I'm just gonna go let the goblin completely consume me and. I think that allowed for an an even better performance, like you're saying, compared to the to the original movie. Yeah, I, I, I guess my nitpicks really are about those other villains. I thought the lizard and the Sandman effects even looked better in the in the original movies. I did not like I, I, I didn't like seeing the lizard talk. That just that just did not look good to me. Um, cause especially because I don't think they even like modulated his voice at all. It just it just sounded like 
you know, like when Topher Grace was Venom in Spider-Man 3, he's just a guy talking through the Venom suit. Any Anytime there's something like that, it just really bothers me and sticks out to me. But those are really, you know, minor issues in the scheme of things, especially because luckily they didn't focus on those those villains too much. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was really funny to me just to see, like, especially Sandman in sand form for most of it and just being like, I bet there's like I bet Thomas St. Church was never on set whatsoever. And and then I looked it up later and apparently both him and um, Rise of Fonz were both um both like just recorded lines in a booth and then they used like archival footage of them for when they turn back into their human forms. So I just thought yeah. it was like so transparent <laughs> to me. I was like, yeah, okay, I'm just going to try not to think about that. <laughs> After 10 minutes, I, I leaned over and whispered, whispered to my brother. I'm like, okay, so they couldn't get Thomas Hayden church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that that's entirely correct. And, and like, I feel like you, it's less of a weakness for Reese Evans, character, Dr. Kirk Connors, AKA yeah. the lizard, because right. he was going to be a lizard the whole time regardless. Right. Sure. And so he would have right. been a CGI creation anyway. Um, and I don't know if like motion capture would have really helped the performance at all, but I do feel like, um, the Thomas Hayden church scenes, if he actually was in the room, some of them may have landed a little bit better. I mean, he's an incredible actor. And so I think that he really could have made a lot more of the scenes than he could, but I think he gives a pretty good, uh, voice acting performance, all things considered. Um, and yeah, I like a lot of people watching the film, like at the end when Thomas Hayden church, like turns back into a person, spoiler alert. Uh, people were like, oh, that looks like maybe it was CG or something else. And I had literally just rewatched Spider-Man 3 a few days earlier. And I was like, no, that's literally the exact same scene of him uh, like transforming into Sandman for the first time, only reversed. They just reversed the footage. It's exactly ah, the same wow. footage. Okay. <laughs> Um, but like props to them for figuring that out. You know, I mean, they did make this movie in the middle of the pandemic and decided to have like a cast of thousands, including a lot of really famous people. So it's pretty impressive that they pulled it off at all, honestly. And then it feels as seamless as it does, you know, but you wonder if like what would have happened if, uh, you know, uh, Jamie Foxx couldn't be available <laughs> instead of Thomas Aiden <laughs> Church, you know, like they really got lucky in terms of the fact that like, you know, Sandman could be a non-corporeal person for all of it and it could mostly work so they, they could have kept him blue i guess the whole time. yeah they could have and that would have been terrible yeah. <laughs> so we have but mentioned I, I think we were about to pivot to the same thing which is that we've been talking so much about the villains and about yes. our peter and and everything else but we haven't talked about the giant elephant in the room which you know sony and marvel's marketing team tried to keep a secret um very poorly uh and that is of course that um charlie cox returned as daredevil no um that is of course <laughs> that uh both of the original spider-men are in this movie yeah so i i just really quick want to mention that i saw this with my um with my folks and my mom especially did not know anything about this movie going in she didn't know oh, wow. that any of the older characters were going to appear she just assumed it was the next you know spider-man with tom holland basically um and so like I'm, I'm watching with them and like every time a new person shows up, like I just hear going, what? Like it was just oh, so, so great. Uh, I'm so jealous of her. I, I wish <laughs> I, I wish I could erase my mind every time I go into one of these movies. But I just I can't help. But, you know, I mean, especially this one, but even some of the smaller stuff I, I usually end up finding out. Yeah. And I I really try to stay as spoiler free as possible, especially for a movie that I know I'm going to watch anyway. 
Um, but with the whole question of, like, will the other Spider-Men actually be in this, like, it seems like it was impossible for them not to be, but there was, like, a small chance that they really weren't bluffing and that they weren't going to be in it. And that, like, that idea was, like, so upsetting to me that I just, ha- when the leak came, because there were, uh, Justin, I don't know if you know this, but there was a leak where uh, the image of the Spider-Men, like, on the, on the roof together was, was posted online. And, oh, like, no. I... And I looked at it because I was like, I need to be able to modulate my expectations with this movie. And I can't watch a almost three hour movie uh, like waiting for something to happen that isn't going to happen because that's going to completely like mess up my expectations and like my ability to just like process the movie reasonably on its own terms. So I just need to know if it's really going to happen or not. And so I did. I saw that they were all together and I was like, okay, good. That's all I need to know. I don't need to know how long they're in the movie for. I don't need to know why they're there or like what role they're going to play. Ultimately, I just need to know that they're going to be there at least for a scene. And, and I'm glad that that's as little as I knew, because I love, love, love the way that they were used. And it ended up still being a surprise for me because I really expected it more to be a situation where he gets to see one or both of them either together or separately. And, and then like, they like have a nice moment where they, where he like learns what it means to be Spider-Man. And then he goes off and saves the day and maybe they pop back up at the end to help out. Um, but no, like they're in the whole second half of this movie. They're like major characters. But Justin, what do you think about that? I, I loved it. I was surprised how much I loved it. Cause I think going into this, I thought, well, that's going to be like, it's probably going to feel really forced you know, they're probably going to say things to make us remember, oh, remember that thing we did in that movie that you loved? Like, that was really great, wasn't it? And like, okay. <laughs> and I think what I really liked about both the performances from Garfield and Maguire, as well as the way they think the characters are written, is that it felt like we were seeing the characters that had existed after the movies they were in. Like, they had lived years after those movies. They hadn't just come from those movies. They had really let the and all of them have experienced loss to a significant degree and how they let that sort of um affect how they how they did things and maybe you know maybe not always for the best um and i like that they're bringing that into this movie um so it felt like this wisdom that they had gained um you know whether intentionally or otherwise um and that felt like in addition to a sort of baton passing to a certain extent, it also felt like they were really, they were really looking out for this person. Cause not only was he a little bit like them, but also like they were hoping to have him avoid the mistakes that maybe they had made. Um, and I thought that was a really smart choice because it really does make them feel more like, more like people, not just like symbols of the movies that they came from, not just like memories. They felt really like these people who had lived these lives outside of the movies we had seen. Um, so I really like that. I like how naturally the camaraderie came between them. Um, so much so that I almost wish the film had not pressed it a few times too many for me. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I needed Andrew Garfield hugging them both and saying, I love you guys. Like, I'm like, yeah, I get that. Like, that's been very clear in all of your performances. Like, no, but he's the he emotional up one. A little bit. So he gets to say it, you know, it's like, he, yeah, I love, I love that character. They're like they do these like subtle characterization choices where it's like for like they, and this is something that Marvel does so well, which is they say like, okay, we're going to have these fully fleshed out characters that are going to have even more depth to people who experience them and other things. But we're also going to put like a, a character kernel 
for each of them, for someone who's just watching this movie for the first time and is watching it on a pretty surface level, especially like a younger audience member or someone who's just not really that engaged. And so it's like Toby is the old wise one. Andrew is the emotional one. Right. Like and they just like they're able to just do that and still feel like fully dimensional, but also like be easily accessible. I think that's just such a smart like uh, screenwriting technique that should feel really patronizing but really is effective for some reason hmm. and i love the way that uh, garfield plays all of his scenes like he's just so like um, like he's the one who's clearly been the most emotionally out of control prior to these events and he's also the one who seems to be really getting the most uh emotional fulfillment out of this experience in a way even more so sure. than tom holland um and i just love all of those small moments with him and i think that he just is so so great in this movie well, and I think that's great, too, because a, a common complaint about him and his Spider-Man movies is that his Peter Parker, it seems like too cool and too put together. And, you know, he's he's good looking. He's he's pretty fairly popular. Like he's not he's not a nerd and like picked on to the point that like the Toby Spider-Man is. And this movie made it seem like he's still that guy, but he's kind of been living on his own and he he hasn't gotten out much and he's basically been living his life as spider-man and you get the sense that he hasn't had a lot of like human contact at all and so that moment where he's hugging them saying i love you guys it's like he's just happy to have like friends that he can talk to that <laughs> understand him and he's it, it shows another side of that character that i don't think we saw in those first two movies who who he just seemed like he kind of had everything put together um that i liked like what you said, Justin, how they didn't pull those guys out of their movies where we last saw them like they did with the villains. Um, we we get the sense that, you know, this is 10, 20 years later and they've gone through a lot of things that we haven't seen and they don't have to sit us down and explain all of that, but you get little hints about it and it's just enough that it doesn't overwhelm the movie. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I couldn't say it better. I, I, and I like I think there's other moments, too, where like he the whole sequence where where Toby tells Ned about Harry Osborne and then Ned like tells Tom that he's never going to turn evil and try to kill him. And then Andrew just puts his his arm on Ned's shoulder like, good job, buddy. Like, it's just like, yeah. it's just it's so great. I really I just I love him so much. He's this has really been a fantastic year for Andrew Garfield. I mean, uh, listeners to this podcast know that I loved Tick, Tick, Boom. And I thought that his performance was one of the performances of the year. He also is a great um, supporting turn in the eyes of Tammy Faye as Jim Baker from earlier uh, this fall. So it's just a really excellent uh, fall to be Andrew Garfield, uh, aside from all of the interviews that he had to do where he had to say he wasn't in this movie, which, uh, you know, <laughs> that really sucked for him. <laughs> Between him and Maguire, I think actually Garfield got most of the applause. And actually, I remember someone screaming, I assume in ecstasy when he appeared. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was, I was like, That's, oh, I, I guess... Because it's most, you know, it's mostly a younger audience that we were with, I think. So that kind of. I'm so sense. happy to hear that because it, both times that I saw it, like when when Andrew popped out of that uh, portal, there was a lot of like, "Ooh, what's happening?" Oh, mm -hmm. I and like people being like, "Who's that?" Oh, yeah, he was that. Guy. You know, like all of that sort of crowd reaction. Yeah. And then when Toby comes out, everybody loses their mind, and like people were chanting Toby, and the audience was just like, oh, wow. you know, really." <laughs> I never thought I would hear the name Toby chanted in a crowded <laughs> audience of people, but like, love that. Um, so yeah, I was just I'm really happy to hear that. That like, oh, that you know, I I think Toby was definitely the the bigger get 
going into this movie in terms of people's, you know, nostalgia for the Spider-Man movies. I think the the Tommy Wire movies were seen by many more people than the Andrew Garfield ones. So they're just more in the public consciousness. But I think what they did so right was when you're leaving this movie, you're more excited to see where Andrew Garfield's character goes. You feel like there's not much more to say about the Toby iteration, but there is more for Andrew. And I think it introduced his version of the character to a lot of people who hadn't seen those movies before, who might go back out and check them out now, which that may or may not be a good thing because they might have a soured opinion after watching some of those movies. Um, So maybe it's just best to not rewatch those and go forward from here. Um, Even though I think there's a lot in both of those movies that is good. It's just the whole, the whole package is not delivered quite so um, well, but I, I think that is another great thing about this movie is it made a lot of people care about an iteration of a character who is kind of, seen as like the black sheep of the family. And now he's hmm. he's moved up to a lot of people's favorite, I think. Yeah. Now, Justin, I'm curious because you didn't see those movies. So I'm really curious what your feeling is on him as a character. And also the kind of big moment for his character where he gets to save MJ. Yeah, as that's, as MJ. I, that's the first thing I think of when I think of him in this movie, actually. And yeah. And so the way <laughs> having not seen uh I think it's this it's the sequel, right? Where that happens. Yeah. Where uh-huh. Okay. Um so having not seen that film, um, but knowing that Gwen Stacy was played by Emma Stone, the way I read it in the moments <laughs> was it was like the actor like the actor Andrew Garfield, like the ma- like the person reacting to <laughs> losing Emma Stone <laughs> as as his girlfriend. <laughs> like yeah. He really like and I think what was great, I love that it was a very delayed reaction like that it he in the moments of like of saving MJ that it's very much just like, you know, the kind of hero mentality of like, OK, I'm going to do this and then recognizing the gravity of it as, you know, as he's a little you know, as he starts to come back to reality, recognizing, um, you know, the contra, the juxtaposition of the current moment and his memory that that really that really worked for me um and i felt like and i also just loved i love zendaya's like line delivery too when she asked him if he like which is a you know direct response and kind of a taking what you know him asking if she's okay and then asking if he's okay and meaning a totally different thing um and i just thought that i just thought that both of them are great in that scene it meant so much to me when that happened. Like I, cr- I definitely cried. I the first time that I saw it, I like quietly exclaimed and completely involuntarily, "He did it! He saved her!" Because it just like <laughs> <laughs> having just watched those movies again. Like he loved him. He loved Emma Stone so much. I think like in real life also probably we could say um, he still talks about her in interviews as like the one who got away, which is really sweet and sad. Um, and. And they just have such electric chemistry in those movies. They're they're the only thing that really, really works in those movies. Like, there's things that some people like more than others about those movies, but th- but that's the one thing that everybody can agree are just it's just excellent. And when she dies, it's just horrible. Like it's the like the sequence. And uh, having not watched it, you might not be aware of like the detail of it. But basically, like he tries to save her by webbing her, right? Like and by grabbing her with her his web and mm-hmm. and pulling her. But the but pulling it like it doesn't 
it doesn't work in time and so she she hits the ground first and then the web pulls her back up and it basically snaps her back and she dies instantly and it's really it's brutal her, yeah. it's horrific it's mm. really bad and it's like you see and then he jumps down and, and reacts to it and it's so upsetting and then there's like this montage where he just is sad in a cemetery for literally one year and it's just really really upsetting <laughs> and um and like so here he doesn't use his web right he jumps and he catches her and makes sure that he can save her instead and he's learned that mistake and it just must and you just know that he spent his whole life from that point until this one thinking if only i had jumped down and saved her myself instead of trying to web her like i could have saved her life and that's like been haunting him forever and the fact that he gets to have that like that that fulfillment moment and it like it won't bring the person he loves back but knowing that he could do this for another person i think it just it just like garfield just sold in literally like split second you know it's just it's <laughs> such a quite fast scene and he just sells all of that so much and it just is so so effective and it's like maybe the best moment in the movie <laughs> and i think it really is one of the only ways that they could have made me want to see that character go on either to come back in the MCU or do his own movie because just thinking about a sequel to the Amazing Spider-Man 2, not only did they get rid of the really only thing that worked in that movie, which is their chemistry, it ended on such a sad note that you didn't even want to see that universe continue because it I mean, you know, they like you said they go they skip a year, but still you're just going to be thinking about it the entire time. This puts a lot of more distance in between that and also him being able to save MJ, it gives some sort of closure to that to that heartbreaking loss he had that I I would feel better about seeing this character now continue and to see how he puts his life back together. Whereas before I just I didn't want to see any more of that. Yeah, I totally agree, especially because what they were kind of teasing was like, well, he's going to be so overcome with rage and anger over the loss that that's then he's going to like get the Venom symbiote and he's going to be like ultra violent. And and it's like, who wants to see that? That sounds, you know, but now now we're in this like very different place where if he comes, if it's like, hey, he has to like hang out with like Tom Hardy and and Jared Leto and like take on like some other guy in like that universe, like I, I'd be here for it. I, I might not be there opening day, but I'd be here for it. <laughs> <laughs> I am somewhat conscious of we seem we're running a little long on this. Um but <laughs> yeah, did we, we want to close it out here or did we have a little more to say about I think there's just one thing that we haven't hit that we really should, which is, mm -hmm. you know, the the Marissa Tomei of it all, right? Like mm -hmm. she gets a lot more to do in this movie and she gets to be his moral compass in a way that she yeah. really didn't get to be in those first two movies. Um, and, uh, and then she dies and, and it's sad and, and, it, and like, it makes, uh, Tom momentarily want to murder the goblin with his, with his own glider. Um, and, uh, yeah. What did, what did you guys think about that whole thing? Like making Mary, like making, um, Aunt May be like, fill the, that Uncle Ben role, um, in a lot of ways. And then, and like the fact that Marissa Tomei, um, both had a little bit more to do and then also um, is no longer with the franchise now, obviously, and, and all of that and how it impacted um, Tom's Peter. Um, I I thought it was one of the best scenes in the movie. It was really, really sad. Any anytime in a movie where someone gets, you know, fatally injured, but you don't necessarily realize it right away and they're still kind of put together and talking, that really affects me every time, even though I, I had a feeling that she was probably gone when she gets up for a second, I thought there might have been a chance, but it, it was just really hard to watch that 
that whole sequence take place. Um, I thought they both acted brilliantly in that scene. And I like that they gave her kind of the Uncle Ben role because I, I will say I I understand why they didn't retread a lot of the origin stuff. But I'm also someone who is would you know I if someone wants to watch the MCU in a vacuum and they have no knowledge of the comics or any of the other movies or anything like that, especially, you know, I'm thinking 10, 20, 30 years from now, as we get further and further removed from some of those original movies, it it hurt me a little bit to lose some of that origin because I think Spider-Man has one of the better origin stories of a lot of characters. And even in the, the Toby movie, the uncle Ben scene where he dies, that really stuck out to me when I saw that when I was about 10 years old. And I really think that adds a lot to the character to have that sort of really personal loss so I was happy to see that they kind of grafted that scene in, into the relationship with Aunt May. Um, and then you also get some more context to that as well with the other characters talking about their Uncle Ben and the things that they've lost. Um, so I thought that was kind of a brilliant way to, like I said, we're not retreading some of the the origin stuff that we've done a million times before, but we're giving, we're bringing a little bit of it back in, a, in an MCU twist, um, and I think that's what the MCU does so well is they they take a lot of characters and stories that have been told many times before in different mediums, and just gives it enough of an unexpected twist that it seems new even to people like me who have who have seen it done so many times. Yeah, I fully agree with everything that you said. I think that you said it as well as I could have. Um, the only thing that I'll add is that I I definitely think that. Um, Marissa brought so much to this role that wasn't always on the page, that was pretty much never on the page, and Mm -hmm. I really respect her for that. She has kind of gone on record as at least implying that she's not a big fan of this part, and and it seems like she's probably happy to no longer be playing it. Um, And I do understand that as well, but I do think that she's going to be a loss. And I really, really like that that final scene that she has with him. And uh, the way that Tom plays it is just like where, you know, he's just I mean, it just breaks your heart the way that he's with her and he's holding her. And then and then when she finally loses consciousness, like the choice that he makes of being like, what are you doing? Just open your eyes like as if like it's just inconceivable to him that one more person is going to die in his arms, right? Like that he's lost so much as a character. He's still just a kid and he's lost so, so much in his life. And this is the one person who just couldn't die, right? This is the one person that he had that it just is inconceivable to lose. And now she's gone too. It just like, it, it's a, it's, it's a subtle thing that he does, but I think it's so smart because it conveys so much and it just really, really broke me. And, and, you know, I think that a lot of people are a little bit like, well, it's kind of ridiculous that all of a sudden he, like, wants to kill the Green Goblin, and that's, like, so against his arc as a character and, like, against who he's been presented. And it's just, wow. like, I, I think that he sells it in that moment why he would have those feelings. And it's also easy to lose track because there's so much going on. But, the like, the entire runtime of this film, like, outside of that opening montage where we kind of zip forward, like, six months, basically, it all happens over the course of 48 hours. Like, from the time that, like, Peter is on the, on the bridge to the time that Peter is on the 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 shield at the end of the film 48 mm-hmm. hours have basically elapsed so i would believe that with that like compressed of a time that he would still not be totally okay with what happened and like have a hard time and need his former friends like his former selves basically to help bring him back to earth like I, that makes sense to me yeah 
and and I just I like how sustained that moment is between them. Um, I like that, you know, it, it's and maybe speaking to what you were saying, Matt, about like wondering if maybe there was a chance they were gonna save her. Just like how many times he asked her, like, "You sure you're all right?" Like it just it seems like oh, if they were gonna kill her, that it would just happen you know, right away or something. And they just really do, um, they really do sustain it in a very effective way. Um, also the fact like there's some extra, you know, power to the fact that the whole, the reason this happened is because of, of a suggestion that Aunt May made to him, um, about, you know, believing that there was a way to save these people without killing them. Um, and now it's resulted in her death. So there's an extra power to that. Um, and yet there's still something about it for her that makes it like, even with this significant loss, that there's still a power there's st- it's still worth doing even with this significant loss. Um, and I, I think that sustains a lot of the rest of the film, um, you know, as he ultimately does not give in. Well, <laughs> thanks to maybe a good support structure, let's say yeah. <laughs> to his darker <laughs> impulses. Um, but I I think that's, you know, I think that's very significant as well, just structurally. Yeah, absolutely. I fully agree. And I think we probably should end it there so that we can get into our other review. Yes. Uh, but, but, but before we do, I just want to say, if you really, really enjoyed this movie, um, a movie that you should check out is a movie from 2019 called Tully, because it's all about how, <laughs> like, visions of your former self can really help you through an, an emotional uh, crisis mm-hmm. of conscious. And, uh, yeah, I, I really, I might be the only person in the theater who was feeling that way, but I was really getting Tully vibes through a lot of those scenes where the Spider-Men were talking to each other. <laughs> oh, I like that. I like that a lot. All right, well, uh, we're going to move on to our next film, um, which is, of course, The Matrix Resurrections, the fourth film in the Matrix series. This one directed uh, by Lana Wachowski, not with Lily. Um, But it's been a long time coming. It's something that I think, I know for me, I just assumed was never going to happen. And now it's here. And I feel like there's been a somewhat tepid response to it so far from what I've seen. Um, and I'm curious to hear what you guys thought. So uh, maybe I'll start uh, this time with you, Alex. I know that you're a really big fan, especially of the first movie. And I know that you um, also really like the second one as well. Um, so how did this one live up to your expectations? And, um, and you know, if you want to talk a little bit about your experience with some of the older films and how this one figures into that, um, that would also be good. Yeah, so I, I lo- as you said, I love the first film. I came to it very late. I didn't see the first film until, like, high school, I'm pretty sure. Mm. Um, but I, I think that was probably for the best, because <laughs> uh, I don't know if I could have dealt with it um, when I was nine when the movie came out. Uh, but, yeah, I think it's great. I definitely, like, I had the video game. I loved this. I saw... Matrix Reloaded was the first movie that I ever saw on the big IMAX screen in New York City, which was really an experience. Um, Watching that uh, incredible like highway chase sequence on uh, in IMAX um, as like my first experience of what IMAX was and felt like. So jealous. It was just it was incredible. I can't even like 13 year old me just didn't know how to process it at all. It was like an amazing experience. (laughs) Um, And then like I remembered that like 
you know, I don't, I didn't even see the third one when it came out because I honestly, it was during like that time when I don't know, like no one I knew was talking about it. And I just didn't think, I thought like, Hmm, did that movie ever even come out? You know, like, cause it just like, I remember that it was supposed to come out. The trailer was at the end of the second one, but then like what happened? And I caught up with it like many years later and, um, didn't like it that much. I will say, <laughs> um, I've watched it again since. And I think that like, there's some interesting things about those sequels that um, work better if you're willing to get on its wavelength. And there's and there's a lot of ambition that I respect that don't that doesn't always work in execution. Um, but you got it. You got to respect them for trying. Um, this movie, on the other hand, is one of my favorite films of the year. I am a freak about mm. this movie. No one likes this movie more than I do. <laughs> so I don't know if I should start the conversation because it might just be like me ranting for another 20 minutes about how great it is. But I just, I'll just say that, that I just loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved it from the opening, like second to the final, uh, like, well, I didn't love the end credit. I don't know if you guys watched the end credit. I didn't love the end credit scene that much, but yeah. everything up until then, I loved. I just, it was so fantastic from beginning to end. It gave me everything that I wanted, which was to give me nothing that I expected. And I think that that's the best way that I could put it as concisely as possible. But um, I don't know what either of you guys think about this movie. So I'm really, really curious because it's very divisive. Yeah. Uh, I'll start with you, Matt. Well, I love the original Matrix, one of my favorite movies of all time. I love Reloaded. I, I think it was the first R-rated movie I saw in theaters. Um, for that high, that freeway scene alone, it's, it, I love it. Um, and I even love the third one probably more than most people. I don't love I shouldn't say I love it. I've convinced myself that I like it. Um, <laughs> this, this movie I want to love, and there are so many things about it that I do love. But there's a lot of it holding it back for me where I think I think it honestly just comes down to some choices they made with certain characters. Some of the just some of the plot points that that require so much convoluted exposition to kind of explain. I, I especially the first hour I really enjoyed. But I think there's just so so many choices they made that required so much additional explanation and not in a way that that the first one kind of left you a little confused and needing to rewatch it again. This one I had to rewatch again just because things were not clicking with me. And even when they did, I, even when I understood what was going on, I I didn't necessarily like it or or think it made total sense. And I think there was a version of this story with a few slight changes that could have worked for me so much better. But I didn't hate the movie. I didn't love it. I just think that. I saw what they were trying to do, and I, I just wish I could, when I'm watching it, I just wish I could let my brain, turn my brain off a little bit more, but I just find myself asking so many questions and wondering why so many certain choices were made that it just kind of makes the experience a little lesser for me. But I, I hope you can convince me to love it more because I want to love it. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I might be somewhere in between where I feel like I like this movie. This is actually, I'd say it's my favorite after the original. Um, I think where I, I think the first, I don't even know if I want to say hour, maybe like first 45 minutes were where I really didn't know what was going on and I was really into it. I felt genuinely unmoored. I really was convinced for a while that it was like, maybe they're just making it so that everything that happened in those first few movies was all in his head and 
maybe they're going to like live in that ambiguity for the rest of the film. Like that's really daring. Um, and uh, they don't quite do that, <laughs> but um, they do still ask some interesting questions. I will say what I, the things I like about it um, are definitely uh, things that, like you said, Alex, that were sort of unpredictable, that were new things. And that I felt like we're, we're actually tapping into um, the, this, the idea of constructed reality in new and interesting ways. Um, I really liked that stuff a lot. I would say maybe where it gets bogged down for me a little bit is in <laughs> certain things that reminded me of the sequels, which is, I think, as you mentioned, Matt, all the the overlong explanations of things to make things work in the plot. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't said a lot about the sequels. I feel like I don't like them as much as, uh, you know, I, I probably like them less than even people who, you know, who maybe not don't like them a, a ton. Um, you know, I, I think that the, I think reloaded is pretty decent and I just really hate revolutions. <laughs> like I really didn't like it at all. Um, but I think what this movie, um, when this movie does become about that, I think, I think all that, all the things I didn't like about the sequels and even to a certain extent in this movie, to me illuminated like what made the first movie so great. There's a, such an efficiency to that first film. Even when they explain things, it's all in service to like understanding the rules of this world. And they all, there's still like, there's, it sets up certain limitations and it sets up certain rules that, um, you know, when they're defied, it's usually pretty sparing when it happens. Um, and it, and it's genuinely surprising when it happens because they've been, those rules have been so well established. Um, here, every time it's like, I do feel like with this series, for me, all this, like the stuff that's outside the matrix, I think is really where it starts to lose me, where it starts to become overly explaining about how this works, how this thing is happening. Oh, we discovered this technology. Oh, now there are these machines that are apparently sentient and have specific, you know, are called sentients. And I guess, you know, that's a thing that happens. Um, and I that starts is really where it starts to get bogged down for me. Where it does work for me is in the emotions. Um, I was surprised how much that image of <laughs> Trinity and Neo in the sky and how this is basically a film that says like, actually, instead of the one, what if it were the two? And I'm kind of like, that's pretty awesome. Um, and I also just, I really liked a lot of the new characters, especially Jessica Henwick, who plays Bugs, I thought was such a great addition to this franchise, a way so of great. showing someone who could be in awe of everything that had happened in the original films without being annoying about it in the way that i would say certain characters in the matrix sequels were she always <laughs> feels very plucky and and over like like optimistic and bubbly and fun and yet still taking everything so seriously and and practically i just really loved her performance she's such a wonderful and i thought she was such a wonderful character so yeah i don't know i feel like i'm kind of all over the place here but um i don't know if it's quite coheres for me but um, but it does like work for me in specific moments. And that was enough to make me satisfied that I had seen it. Um, and, uh, you know, and I'm glad that something like this could be made, you know, more than 20 years or no, I'm sorry, less than 20 years uh, if we're counting this, the sequels, um, you know, almost 20 years, let's say, um, after that and still to be, you know, pretty daring in a lot of ways. Yeah, I totally understand what you guys are saying, but I don't care. I think this movie is so fantastic. 
Like, so this is my pitch for the movie. It's basically what if Charlie Kaufman, truly in love for the first time in his life, made a Matrix movie. And I think that that's just fantastic. I love Lana Wachowski. I am so on board with their vibe. You know, Um, I think like you really if you're a person who loved Cloud Atlas, I think you're going to really like this movie. If you're a person who liked Sense8, you're going to like this movie. I think that the fact that this movie comes down to like this connection between two people being the most important thing in the universe. Some people are going to consider that cheesy. I just love it. I think that it's so well executed and it's just like all, and I think all of the world building stuff that they do is so cool. Like I love that the, that they didn't do what star Wars did, right. As much as I liked the force awakens and I did, I am on record as liking the force awakens. One of the annoying things about the force awakens is like, Oh, so remember those movies where, you know, they toppled the empire and like, whatever, like, okay, well it's been 30 years and everything reset exactly the same as what it was before. Why? Uh, Don't worry about it. (laughs) It's like, no, that sucks. (laughs) Like I'm okay with if you're going to be like the, like history is cyclical. That's cool. But then actually like do the work. Don't just be like, yeah, whatever. And what this movie does is it shows like, oh no, like what the matrix actually mattered. Like those sequels mattered, things happened. The status quo is different and more interesting in my opinion, because now we have like the machines are no longer a hive mind, right? There is dissent among machines. That's a really cool idea. And they ex- then they explore it by being like, yeah. So like a bunch of these machines like, uh, like deserted their society and came to help out um, the humans and now they're living in this like super cool uh, like city which is like a techno utopia underground somehow and an old age makeup Jada Pinkett Smith is just like hanging out being all angry and stuff like I'm all in on that I love all of that I think all of that is great <laughs> and I just like I love that you know Yahya Abdul-Mateen II is a fantastic actor who has had a really a number of very high profile roles over the last few years that I think he is just just knocked out of the park um with especially in um uh Damon Lindelof's Watchmen TV series but he's just he's great in everything that you see him in and I just when it came out that they were recasting um Morpheus and that he was going to be in the role I thought like well that kind of stinks because like I love him and I think it's a cool idea that if you have to have a recast Morpheus like he sounds like a cool choice but like why can't Lawrence Fishburne been in this movie and like recasting an iconic role is really lame with a younger actor like why do we have to do that and then it's like oh because the movie is about recasting a younger actor in the role like that's literally what his part is (laughs) he's not Morpheus he is the, and some people are confused about this, but I think it's amazing. He is the uh, he is a computer program, a character that Neo has built for his own video game that has now come to life, and so and knows the leg and has been then taught the legacy of Morpheus. <laughs> he has like aspects of Morpheus inside of him because Neo has put it in him because he's a computer program that Neo invented, um, literally given life to Morpheus, which is such a cool idea, but given the way that like the, the identity of Neo and like the prophecy of Neo gave life to Morpheus in a lot of ways in the original trilogy for Neo to literally give life to the this new Morpheus, and then for, like, Yaya to then spend the rest of the movie being like, that dude was super cool, I'm gonna try to be cool like him, and then, like, kind of <laughs> not do it. It's so funny, and it's such a cool idea, and I just, like, it's just, like, that sort of, like, inventive approach to kind of almost satirizing big-budget, like, franchise filmmaking at, 
as much as I love big budget franchises filmmaking, it is so ripe for satire. And I think this is such a great example of a movie that gets to do both really effectively. Yeah, and that's that's a perfect example of what I love about the movie, but also have problems with because, like you're saying with this Morpheus character, it's from what I understand, he exists in a separate simulation that Neo is running, separate from the actual Matrix video game, but it's a it's a program that it runs on a loop, um, and as a way to train this Morpheus program, but within the program. He's actually an agent. He's actually supposed to be Agent Smith, but imbued with Morpheus's memories. And it's designed to kind of break him out of that. And just what I'm saying right now makes some sense to me because I've seen the movie. But it just is like a really long and convoluted way to bring a character into the story. When I was watching it, I was thinking, wouldn't it have just couldn't you have accomplished the same thing, but made it about maybe someone playing the Matrix, the video game? And Yahya Abdul-Mateen is literally playing the Morpheus role in that game, not some agent in a separate program that gets Morpheus. You know, it it's just like an extra level of convolution to me that didn't need to be there, where I think you could have done a very similar thing if you just stripped it down a little bit. I mean, yeah, I can understand why. Like, I think the idea of him being in a separate thing apart from the game is to, like, avoid scrutiny. I think that's the idea. And that's why, you know, they're able, that's why um, Bugs and her team are able to break into that. that makes um, sense. But yeah, I don't, but I, yeah, I guess I'm with you. I'm not quite sure why he needs to be an agent. I, I like that as a result, kind of like you were saying, Alex, that he's not doing a Morpheus, like he's not strictly doing like a Morpheus impression as much as playing of like the version that he, the, playing what he thinks Morpheus is. And yet he still kind of has his own style. Like I like that he wears these like very bright suits. <laughs> I just think that's really cool. Um, and I like also that it almost feels like instead of what we got in the original, uh, in the original film where, you know, basically Morpheus had project had already settled on um his belief structure and that this person was the one and was going to teach him these things. These things were faded. I like that within um, Abdul Mateen's performance, it feels like he's discovering these things as he's, as he's performing the role of Morpheus in the original film. Like it feels like he's not just, these things are not faded for like, or they're they're They need to happen, but also he's discovering them simultaneously. At, you know, and I think that's really clear in that great action scene which um, looks gorgeous, honestly. Like, I was just so impressed by how that was shot. Um, and there's something also Which about action how... Scene is that? The one uh, in this that? is around... It's around the hour. It's when he's uh, basically trying to get him to um, fight back um, in the... Um, I don't know what you would call it. I guess, like, like the... Little Pagoda. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like um, the, the dojo on a lake kind of deal. Yes, yeah. yes. There, thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Um, I just love I love everything about that scene because it's just it's it's about discover it's taking it's riffing on and I think I I actually really I like how this film is able to remix elements of the original and give them new context and actually make us think differently about how they appeared in the first movie and I think that's a great example of that. 
Yes, I fully agree. Like, there's this thing that Damon Lindelof said about the Watchmen series that he was working on before he ever, before, like, a year, like, a year and a half before it ever came out, where he said, like, I'm not remaking Watchmen, I'm remixing it. And I remember thinking, like, oh, God, that sounds like a terrible idea. And then turns out, no, it was great. Um, And this feels like that in a lot of ways, too. Like, it feels like they're remixing The Matrix in a way to just kind of, like, like set all of our expectations on its head on their heads and just uh, give us what we don't realize we need which is this whole second sort of um socio-political commentary that fails so current uh, in a way that i was just very surprised by i don't like i think that a great matrix movie should have that aspect to it but i had no hope that it would because it just like how could you do that again and i think that they did it again i think that lana did it again and and um, David Mitchell, who co-wrote the screenplay and was the author of Cloud Atlas, which is the book that um, the Wachowskis and Tom Tickford adapted uh, many years ago into a really bananas movie that I, I understand why some people don't like, but I do really like. Um, <laughs> I like it too. <laughs> I'm so I'm so happy to hear that. Um, but yeah, I just think that like it's such a smart idea to ha- to find a new way for Neo to wake up by making the false world, not this like middle-class consumerist dead end white collar job reality, but an emotionally exploitative reality that dulls our senses with regurgitated IP and keeps people in a constant state of tension between their wants and their needs. I think that that's such a great idea and it's so self-aware and the way that it implicates itself in that process is so fun. And I think it's just so great. And I totally understand why you would say, Justin, that like, well, the the it still has that thing that the sequels do where like there's like long speeches about how things work and the matri- the original Matrix was so economical on that front. And it was. But I think that they really improved upon kind of one of the most notorious scenes in all of the sequels, which is that kind of architect scene, like where <laughs> it's just Neo in a white room talking to a guy in a chair and you, for like what feels like a half hour. Um, like, I think like if like the obvious echo to that scene is the scene that Neil Patrick Harris as the analyst has with Neo in the garage with Trinity. And I think it's just so smart the way that they convey all of that information through like, yes, monologue, but also a monologue that has really high stakes, right? There's a literal bullet, like, floating to Trinity's head the whole time. And there's, like, this interesting action component to it where, like, everything is slowed down and he's trying to do his cool Neo thing, but he can't. He's, like, frozen and there's all this, like, tension uh, around this speech as we're getting it. And I think that's such a smart improvement on the first one where it was like well trinity is gonna die in uh five minutes and so now sit down and listen and he's like i just want to save trinity and and it just like that tension doesn't super work as well at least as it does here Uh, and i really thought that was just very inventive and i also think that obviously neil patrick harris is giving a really great performance um as the analyst and i think bringing a lot more to that scene than maybe the original actor did uh in the original film but or in reloaded i should say but i'm curious how you guys think about that given what you've already said about the kind of expository monologuing that this movie does do um i i really like neil patrick harris in this movie um i that scene semi worked for me i i had some visual issues with the I don't know the the technical film term for it, but any anytime there's slow motion where it, like it's very choppy and removes 
frames that really stands out to me i know it's a done a choice you know done purposely but that really i don't like that and there's so many cool like slow motion scenes in the original matrix movies where this one used a lot of that really choppy slow motion that i did not like yeah i know what Uh, you're talking about and we see it in multiple scenes a lot yeah it comes up a lot um other than that i i enjoyed the scene with him um i really i liked I liked his earlier scenes in the movie, too, where you don't really know if he's manipulating Neo yet or not or really what his whole deal is. And I I love how there's that huge, you know, showdown at his office. And then you kind of get the idea that the Matrix resets a little bit and Neo finds himself back in his office and doesn't really know how he gets there. Um, I also love that the scene where Neo is being pulled out of the Matrix and he reaches through the, the mirror and then you see it goes right into Neil Patrick Harris's house and he's kind of trying to goad him to stay on the other side um i think that's a really good example of how it takes a scene from the original movie like you're saying alex and remixes it um the the scene where neo gets pulled out of the matrix in the first one it's really chaotic with the the mirror kind of crawling up his skin and this one i think is equally so with just that added element of you actually see that scene portrayed on the background and then you have him going through the the mirror and now there's someone else on the other side of the mirror that the moments like that are really where this movie worked the best for me where it was doing something that you're a little bit familiar with but kind of elevating it or or doing something new with it and adding on to it yeah i totally agree i'm, I'm glad that those things work at least that those are some of the things that did work for you what about you justin yeah, I, I would say overall, I would say definitely conceptually, I, I really liked this idea of, again, like this this idea of constructed reality. And I, I thought like creating that tension, right, between your desires and your fears um, and how it's still and the film like very clearly illustrates this of how that basically results in Neo being stuck in a total rut, essentially repeating the same things day after day. And it's, it's like. And I think and I think a lot of us, you know, well, maybe I'm speaking for myself, um, but I think some of us at least uh, kind of live in that world of, you know, just being close enough to something that you want, but not quite getting there almost because you're fearful by by getting to that point. You know, it might not live up to expectations. It might totally upset your world, totally disturb, you know, your life as you've understood it. Um, I thought that as a as a way of controlling people, I thought was so effective because I think that's what a lot of us just do on our own. <laughs> that's what a lot of people do on their own. And I, I found that very relatable. Um, I will say what um, what I thought was I don't know if MPH's performance was I don't think he's doing a bad job. It's it's tough because something like like there's just it's maybe not as memorable as some of the other especially you know it's it's hard to compare anyone to hugo weaving as agent smith but there was just there's something so memorable about his very strange speech patterns and the way he'll just like move his face in a very sinister way and here he's you know obviously the analyst is meant to seem more human sort of by design um but i don't know maybe i wanted him to feel a little more sinister at certain moments maybe i still was like caught up in the fact that it was always mph to me um but you know and i guess the other thing i would say and maybe maybe one of you know maybe the two of you have an answer for me and maybe i'm just missing something um 
there's this whole and speaking to what you're saying before, Alex, about how there's different, you know, there's there's tension among the ranks within the machines. Um, the analyst and correct me if I'm wrong, the analyst is a component of the machines. Right. He's but he's like a separate entity mm-hmm. who yes. has basically found a different way from the architect to construct this reality. Um, yes. So by him failing to have neo give up and go back into the matrix and then the two of them basically saying they're going to they're going to create you know they're going to make this reality within their own you know on their own terms um don't the machines have a say in that or is that or is that not a thing because both of them are free now yeah, I mean, if if I was the machines, and the way I understand it, if that happened and the machine overlord saw this, I if I would just be like, all right, press a button, let's reset onto a new matrix. You know, this because that out of was our the control. whole right. That was the whole like failsafe. Yeah, that was like, and that was what the analyst was trying to prevent. So, but th- is there something I'm missing? Like, why wouldn't the machines just reset it? Well, so the, the the interesting aspect of the matrix this time around is that it's not this right because the what we've learned about the lore of this world, right? Sixty years have passed. The peace that the machines had had negotiated with Neo kind of held for a while, where um, people were allowed to leave the matrix if they wanted to, and then they and but then what happened is too many people left the matrix, and so there were power losses, and that is what caused the tension between different factions of the machines. Basically, what we're led to believe is that the machines, at some point, uh, decided to attack um, Zion to kind of disincentivize people from. Uh, leaving the Matrix, right? Uh, If we destroy their city, then they can't, um, they'll have nowhere to go and then they'll stay, right? But that ultimately seems to have not been super effective either. And there's this new status quo that has built since then where uh, Neil Patrick Harris's version of the Matrix exists. Like that was the kind of solve that they ultimately settled on, which is like, all right, people can leave, but we're going to make the Matrix so efficient at keeping people from wanting to leave while maximizing mm-hmm. their their energy output that that it's going to make our society back to where we want it so technically people are allowed to leave if they want still but no one's going to want to because we're going to like mess with their minds enough through this kind of desire versus fear uh structure that they're not going to feel like they're able to or even really understand that they even want to because they're afraid of what they what they want um which is where that kind of social critique comes into play and so the end of this movie has really interesting ramifications because you know there's a lot of people that i've spoken to that say like well it feels kind of simplistic like it's good versus bad at the end of the day but i really don't think that's true i think it's very kind of Uh, morally ambiguous where we're left off because basically what we have is two kind of despots uh neo and trinity saying like well uh we're gonna rewrite the laws of the matrix now and we're by what we think is important instead of what you did and that kind of has an interesting sort of moral complication to it because you know um sure we think that they're good people and we think that they are have earnest intent but 
um, they should not, no one or two people should be in charge of creating society for everyone else, right? So if we do get sequels, I don't, I don't know if we will, but if we do, I think that we're kind of going to be in this position where it's like, okay, well, Neo and Trinity are in charge of the Matrix because they're this force that the machines just can't control, right? And in order for the Matrix to not go crazy again, we're just going to have to leave them in charge for a while and see if they could do a better job. And, the, but, you know, the Matrix needs to exist for both societies because some people don't want to live outside of the Matrix and the machines need the Matrix to survive as well. So there's like a symbiosis that is more mutual, right? And so then how does Neo and Trinity actually kind of try to create that, right? Where the Matrix is a better version of society in some ways, but also one that people can feel free to leave if they want, right? That's kind of the objective for Neo and Trinity at the end of the day. And the machines really only want to make sure that enough people are in the matrix so that way they're they can like keep their power plants running so as long as that's the case then the machines don't necessarily hate the fact that this is happening well and i I like that explanation of it because it it is interesting in a way in the original movie the goal is pretty much get everyone out of the matrix you know as possible essentially let anyone we can as many people as we can but here we're saying you know neo and trinity and everyone else are kind of conceding that people are going to have to remain in the matrix for these societies to coexist. So we're going to, we're going to manipulate the matrix into a version that we think will be better for the people who are going to be stuck inside better than what the machines are going to do for them. So yeah, the the way you just explained it is a lot more interesting to me than I necessarily got from the movie, but I think that is kind of what's going on. I just, it didn't necessarily come across that clearly to me. Maybe I just need to watch it again. Yeah, I mean, because it's all there. It obviously, it's like, it's hard, though, because you don't want so many different scenes of people explaining things to you, right? That's not interesting. We've established that. But then if you leave it as implication and as, like, that you understand in context, then it's also easy to miss because there's so much going on. And I get that, and I guess in some ways that could be a fair criticism of the movie. But for me, it, it was communicated to me in a way that I totally understood and really, really was excited by. And so I... I love that, and I'm just happy to have had that experience, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so we're so we're basically saying that the by reforging this bond, that the two of them are basically beyond, you know, the machine's reach. Is that? Yeah. Well, I mean, they're not vision? completely beyond their reach in the sense of that, like the machines could go out and try to kill them in the real world, like they did the last time, and they could. Mm-hmm. But the point more is that, like. It's really a metaphor for the internet, right? Like the internet was a place that I think in the 90s it was like, well, we need to like liberate ourselves from the internet and from computers and we need to like exist in the world, right? And that was something that was potent about that idea. But now we're in a place where like the internet is just inherent to our lives in a way that I think a lot of people are saying like, well, we can't just free ourselves from being online. We're all we like society won't function if we're not all online. But can we remake the internet? in a vision that's actually like empathetic and built on connection instead of something that is toxic and and destructive (laughs) to our souls and i think that's the big question that if there's a sequel to this movie that they're gonna have to try to like decide right because that's kind of where we're at we're basically like okay lana wakowski is now in charge of the internet what does she do and will that actually make anything better (laughs) and uh i don't know if it will right that's kind of like the political moment that we're in is this idea of like well 
if we regulate the internet, if we if we remove the swarms of trolls, right? If we if we refocus it on our values, can it be something that we can contain and control and make life lives better instead of worse? And I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, and I don't think that she does either. And I think that's what makes it really cool as like a product of you know cultural criticism and uh, and within a sci-fi world. And to that point, I mean, there's even the moment in io where they have the strawberry and they say the strawberry was created by reverse engineering the code of what strawberries were in the matrix essentially so it's not like they rediscovered this way to naturally grow strawberries they actually use uh, computer programming code from the matrix to grow this in the real world so that's another example of how they can't just get rid of the matrix. They actually are using it to thrive in their new society in certain ways. Yeah, and I think that's what I think that that idea is something that the sequel really tried and ultimately were not successful at kind of circling. And I think it's because more time just needed to pass and actual technology needed to become more integrated into our lives for us to then reflect on it as this idea. But I do think that this symbiosis relationship, symbiotic relationship with technology and with the internet specifically is at the heart of what's so interesting about this movie. Have I done it? Have I like- You're so, making me like, like it more. I'm excited okay. to watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say having just seen this, I guess, yes, yeah, yesterday, I think it's it's one of those things that you kind of need to let settle a little bit because it, it, yeah, it strikes me that um, there's enough interesting ideas, even if it doesn't like maybe quite cohere for me yet in the same way that it does for you, Alex. And I, I also just liked the color scheme here, which is very different from say the first movie, which is marked by a lot of green in the matrix. And here it's a lot of blue. Um, and I think that's actually true inside and outside of the matrix uh io i think is especially known for that not least because of the artificial sky and of course i think we naturally associate so just maybe speaking to what you're talking about this how there's both you know there's pros and cons there's good and bad to this situation um you know you have of course the color blue associated with the blue pill which is the one that keeps you in the matrix and at the same time it's also you know associated with the sky with water with life um, and it's interesting how that's kind of that seems like a really dominant color here. Um, and even, you know, even Bugs's hair, um, which really stands out in a, in a lot of these, especially a lot of the action scenes. Um, so, yeah, I I I can. See, yeah. I, so to, I guess to answer your question, yes, I'm starting to see some of the things that you're talking about for sure. <laughs> well, I'm very happy to hear that. Um, I'm very curious. We haven't really spoken about Smith at all, right? Hugo Weaving was the original Smith. We have a new version of Smith in this round of the sequel, um, played by m one of my favorites, Jonathan Groff, um, who many people might know as the king from uh, from Hamilton, but who won my heart um, in Looking, and uh, even before that, um, Spring Awakening on Broadway. Um, and uh, I'm really curious what you guys think about this, because I think this is the part of the movie that could work the least effect and I think is, for me, saved by all of the great choices that uh, Smith, uh, that Groff rather brings to Smith, because I just, mm. I personally love the way that he plays 
he plays up the the um like homoerotic subtext of the smith and neo uh (laughs) relationship like the way that smith has always been so lustfully obsessed with neo has i think been underutilized in the original trilogy and i think he brings that out really really well um and i also just love how i think that he's a great kind of like sneering villain as a performer and i think that he also is just it's just a really fun idea to be like yeah like 25 years ago we thought that the most uh, evil thing in the world was a faceless fed and now it's a kind of a genial <laughs> um tech bro and i think that that's great i love i love all of that um but i'm curious how that works for you because it's kind of like the one piece that doesn't totally like fit well into the rest of the movie which in my opinion is a strength because smith as a character never quite fits well into whatever is happening that's sort of like a core aspect of who he is is that he's just kind of like this crazy sort of x factor um that's running around and like messing things up so i think that this movie captures that well but in terms of like what the like it that also makes it be a little bit dissonant with whatever what else is going on so i'm curious i get justin what do, what do you think about that um you know i don't know it's i feel like maybe early on in the movie i thought that was an interesting thing i actually not knowing anything about the casting here i wondered if at some point he was going to turn into you know into hugo weaving um uh, which never does happen um and again i think it's it's almost like maybe a bit of a counterpoint to like say you know the newer version of morpheus that we see where it doesn't quite feel like the characters we remember them it feels like someone sort of becoming aware and and obviously it's meant to be him but it also feels a little bit different i think um i would say like i think maybe for me it feels like he just kind of disappears at a certain point and i think i get what you're saying about him being an x factor um i just wonder if maybe there was a way to incorporate him that felt like it was fitting more naturally within um you know within this world that they've made because it just to me feels kind of like i don't want to say extraneous but it felt um it felt like something that didn't quite get developed enough to um to feel like it was sort of a natural part of this world. And I guess I, I do wonder at a certain point, um, I, you know, I guess it, it works in terms of the, I guess, uncanniness in, you know, in the reality that Neo is living. Um, and yet at the same time, I guess it just, it also feels like such a separate element from everything else that I wonder if it really is part of why the film didn't quite come together for me. Yeah, I I liked him. I think that he didn't necessarily need to be Agent Smith. I thought thought he could have been a new character who maybe evoked some of Agent Smith, especially at the beginning where you're having flashes of the original movie when he's talking. Um, But I didn't think he he literally needed to end up being him. Um, I enjoyed the performance, and I, I thought that it was... I guess I guess he adds a little bit of the confusion to me because from what I understand, he doesn't like this current version of the Matrix either. He's sort of become an exile program who's no longer necessary, along with the Merovingian and some of those other programs. And from what I understand, he wants the Matrix to go back to the way it was before. Um, I guess so. I, I guess I don't understand why he's kind of standing in Neo's way. Um, 
other than the fact that maybe he assumes that Neo will further remake the Matrix into something that he'll have even less control in, I guess. But at the end, he help, he ends up helping them. So I, I didn't really follow what changed in his calculations to make him kind of be standing in their way to helping them at the end. Yeah. So I so what the movie says, and I think that it and it, I think that it expresses this in more than just dialogue, but is basically the idea of like, yes, what you said is true, that that he is this kind of like outdated. He is a, an exile, as we've known them from the other films. Um, but he's such a dangerous exile that the um, the Matrix uh, creator, the analyst, has decided to uh, lock him into this false reality um, so that way he doesn't run amok, right? And Neo waking up made Smith wake up because, of course, they are interconnected in a way that... Um, that can never be undone fully, right? So he is he, like Neo is is a core aspect of what's helping keep Smith asleep um, in that fantasy world. And once Neo wakes up, that kind of fractures it, and and nothing can contain him. So then he's running around the Matrix, being like, "All right, cool, I'm gonna take this one over, like I took over the last one." And um, in order to do that, he knows that he needs Neo's help because Neo is is powerful enough to to take on the analyst. And so he teams up with with him to do that. But once once the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of situation um, mm-hmm. is resolved, then he's like, cool, now I'm going to take over the Matrix. Thanks so much. Um, and then they kind of have this big kind of confrontation and it's kind of unclear, like where things are going to end up ultimately. Um, but. I think personally what the subtext of all of that is, is just like, like Smith is like Neo's ex who really like, who hates the fact that he loves him and can't help but help him when he needs it, but also wants revenge on him for breaking his heart. And so he's going to destroy the world if it, if he has to, in order to get that. And I think that's kind of like the emotional uh, subtext that Jonathan Groff is playing. And I think that it worked really well for me. And, um, (laughs) I get why it wouldn't for everybody. <laughs> well, and I think another cool aspect of that character that I picked up on is like part of him, I think, wishes or wants to be like Neo. And I mean, the, the third film, I think, literally ends with him, you know, taking over Neo's body in the Matrix and becoming him. And that's kind of how it's resolved. But I, it's, it's, I get the sense that he would love to have the kind of freedom and power that Neo does. But because of the restrictions placed on him, being a computer program, he's never able to quite reach the heights that Neo is. Yeah, and I think what oh. I think part of what makes the kind of Smith aspect of Yaya's character interesting is that is definitely the most underdeveloped aspect of this entire film. But I don't I do think that part of why it's there is because because that character gets to do the thing that Smith always wanted to do in that respect, right? He gets to leave, he's a program that gets to take corporeal form and leave the matrix and, and exist in the way that Neo gets to exist. So like Neo, by creating this character, this combination of Smith and, and, um, and Morpheus. And and I mean, if you were a combination of Smith and Morpheus and you had the choice to be more like one or the other, obviously you're going to be more like Morpheus because he's way cooler. So totally get that (laughs) choice by the program. (laughs) Um, but he gets to like Neo has created this thing that gets to live out the Smith fantasy uh, in a way 
that is ultimately like uh, allows him to become part of Neo's team and become a, an ally and a trusted one in that. So I think that's a really interesting thing that's running around in this movie too. I think that that's like the most underdeveloped part of it. And I think it's easy to like kind of just zoom over because of that. But I do think that that's really interesting and it contrasts with the real Smith and what the real Smith's problems are in this film. Um, I did want to, I know we're at the, we're at about two hour mark right now. Yes. Um, but I Longest did, episode ever. Yeah. Um, I did want to ask how you guys felt about the action scenes. Of course, you know, the ones in the original are so iconic. Um, and I, you know, we've talked also about the, the car chase scene in Reloaded. I think there's some other scenes there too that are incredibly well choreographed. How did it, how did this film live up to, I think, the very lofty expectations that we have for a fight set in the Matrix? Um, for me, they were mostly forgettable. I think they were, they were fine. They were serviceable. I think it just, they runs into that problem of you're constantly comparing it to the originals in your head. Especially, like we said, that freeway ch- chase is still one of my favorite action sequences of all time. There's just so much, so many different levels to that fight, and so much of it is practical. You know, they built this whole section of highway that if you watch the behind the scenes of how they made that, it just, it's really astounding. That I don't think there's anything that even comes close to that in this movie, and I don't think there's anything that reaches most of the other action scenes in the first couple, at least. Um but I thought they were fine. They're just I, I honestly could have done with really little to no action in this movie. I, I enjoyed the parts without where people are just sitting and talking a lot more than a lot of the action, which is which might not be what a lot of people are going into a Matrix movie expecting. But I think the more they lean into the philosophical aspects of it, the 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 not knowing what's going on, just kind of wondering um you know, which level of reality we're in, all that sort of stuff. That's where I love the movie, when it's just people, like, brawling, especially the fight with the the Merovingian, where people are kind of just jumping around and brawling. That just didn't feel like The Matrix to me. Um, but otherwise, I thought they were fine. Justin, what did you think about it? I'm, I'm kind of in a similar boat, I would say. Um, I think, um, you know, so much of what makes the action especially in that first movie work so well for me is it's not it's about accepting certain things about action scenes that we've seen before and then being surprised when something new happens but again i think it's just it's just sparing enough it keeps sort of ratcheting it ratcheting it up and i think at this point there's not as much room for surprise and i think that's part of why these these action scenes here felt to me felt competent but maybe a bit perfunctory I don't know if they really advance the story of the ideas in a meaningful way for me. I also think that one scene with the exiles that you mentioned, Matt, I think that one is that one's like especially dark. And even though the action scenes in Reloaded, I think about like those settings and how clear everything was just from a visual standpoint. And there it starts to feel a little more muddled to me. It's in this kind of dingy, like, you know, warehouse looking thing. And it it's a lot of, you know, it it just starts to maybe feel a little bit samey at a certain point. And we're seeing like a lot of things we've seen in some of the other movies. Um, I did think there was some, I liked the added aspect in that last sort of motor, motorcycle chase scene slash, you know, 
<laughs> helicopter battle <laughs> because it's mostly <laughs> just Neo force pushing things. <laughs> like I thought that was pretty fun. Um, almost like it becomes like an expression of his love for Trinity. Like it's just, he will not allow it to happen. Um, you know, and I think that's, you know, that's maybe a case of just like using the action as a way of, of explore, of, uh, of, um, illustrating what's going on with the character at that moment. But, um, I, I liked that aspect of it, but for the most part, yeah, it, it didn't quite have the same kind of feel to me that maybe, um, you know, and and really maybe do as much of the work of storytelling and of character that I think we've seen in, in especially the first movie. Yeah, so I fully agree that the action scenes are less interesting and less um, uh, innovatively executed. I disagree that they do less to explore storytelling beats, though, because for me, I feel like the action is purposefully worse because he's not the one in these sequences, right? He doesn't have the power because he hasn't been reunited with an activated Trinity yet. So it's all sure. of these scenes that are are expressing this thing of like, you expect this to go a certain way, but it can't. And it's because he's not reunited with his, like the source of his of his power right that that the two of them together their bond is the one right and so mm -hmm. without that bond you can't have the kind of super cool action sequences and stuff that we saw in the original right because this is a different matrix from the matrix that we were in before so the rules of that matrix are a little bit different so that could kind of explain why everybody isn't doing cool wire foo stuff and the reason why like neo is supposed to be able to supersede whatever even everybody else can do but they can't because his the the second half of his person, right, Trinity, is not activated and not reunited with him. So I kind of really like the, the way that the story teases that out through action. Uh, what I will say is that I think given all of that, I could have done with a little bit more in the final action sequence then for them to, like, once they are reunited, for it to be a mm -hmm. little bit more than what we get. I think what we get is is cool, but... I don't, I don't totally love the idea of, like, human bombs and all that kind of, like, I mean, I get it. It's, like, potent metaphor. Got it. Like, internet swarms of people uh, blowing themselves up in order to attack the target. Like, I got it. Like, I'm on Twitter all day. I get what you're going for. <laughs> but um, but it, it wasn't the most visually interesting thing for me. Um, but that but that is, like, a small price to pay, in my opinion, because I think that the other action sequences, the, the way that they feel lacking is intentional and subversive in a way that I think is really cool i i get that if you're the reason why you watch these movies and i don't think either of you are this type of fan but i know there mm -hmm. are a lot of fans out there who like the reason why they watch the matrix is for cool action like you're not gonna like this movie because it's not giving you that it's purposefully subverting that expectation and i love a movie that subverts my expectation so i'm always going to be on board with that yeah and and one quick point to to your point about him not being the one something i caught re-watching it again last night is when he gets pulled out of the Matrix, it's not like he instantly has all of his memories and powers back. He says something like, oh, I guess, you know, this whole life I thought I had was a lie. He accepts what the reality is and he has some memories. But from what I understand, especially until he meets Awakens Trinity, it's still predicated on the knowledge he has of the video game he programs and his acceptance of what's actually happening. So it's not like he comes out of the Matrix and is snapped back into who he was before and all of his memories rush back to him. So he's still really that Thomas Anderson who we see in the Matrix, just with more of an acceptance that this video game he's been programming actually happened to him. Yeah, I can definitely see that. 
um, I guess maybe I <laughs> maybe I needed more of that intentionality that you're talking about, Alex, because I like I could maybe see that, but I guess I would also say like, isn't that a way of excusing action that's not <laughs> necessarily as good? Um, I mean, yeah, I, maybe I needed them to lean more into that if that's really the way they're going to go with it. Yeah, I mean, you do get those cuts like periodically in the action sequences of him like struggling in his chair and that and it kind and then like sure. flashes to like memories yeah. of Trinity and like that Trinity is the thing that is keeping him from like losing it. And like especially that sequence with um, with Smith in the in the Merovingian like so they are drawing that connection. It's not like maybe the most explicit connect. like I understand if that's not something that's hitting for you, but I think that it's there, you know, I mean, yeah, that's <laughs> but look i get it it's this movie is not for everyone and it's not going it wasn't intended to be for everyone i think that's kind of something that's remarkable about it because you know in this day and age like we all we spent like almost an hour talking about how much we liked spider-man and that is and so clearly we all really like it but that is definitely a movie that's built for everyone to like and then it does it really well and that's an accomplishment this movie is built for everyone not to particularly like it it's built for like me to like it i guess <laughs> but and i like it so i'm just happy that it exists what can i say yeah and i guess i'd say i'm glad it was made it was much more interesting to watch having watched the sequels so i'm definitely glad that i did that i think that maybe it doesn't quite come together for me in the way it does for you but i definitely think there are some interesting aspects to it and i think that um you know i wouldn't be opposed to seeing a sequel um and, you know, if it explores some of the ideas that you mentioned, I think that would definitely be an interesting way to go. Um, and yet at the same time, I'd still also like to be surprised. Um, and, uh, you know, and I hope that that uh, Lana's Wachowski is able to still do that. Yeah. And if they don't get to make any more, I I am glad it exists because I don't mind there being this kind of happy ending for Neo and Trinity, um, even if it seems a little bit like too nicely wrapped up for them compared to how they things ended for them in the third one which essentially they both were dead so much (laughs) much better ending much better outcome for them but i think this movie really captured that that relationship was such a core part of the original trilogy that got lost a little bit along the way so i'm glad that was brought back and refocused on a little bit and we ended we ended on that rather than where the third one ended um I think of it almost like as an epilogue almost um, compared to the Mm. finale we got in the third one. Yeah, like Matrix Revolutions ends with them both dying tragically (laughs) as saviors. Um, And then Matrix Resurrection, much to its name, ends with them being gods. And will they be merciful gods or will they uh, struggle under the weight of that expectation? That is to be determined, maybe only in our memories. But (laughs) I'm happy with that result. (laughs) guess we'll wrap it up there for now um but that was really good guys i'm glad that we (laughs) i feel like we did a pretty thorough coverage of both movies so that's pretty impressive (laughs) um but let's talk about where we can find everyone and um actually i'll start with myself uh and i will say you can find me on the cinemaverick.com that's my website i'm also uh, on letterboxd at the cinemaverick if you want to find um my recent reviews there um, and I'll pass it over to Matt. Uh, anything that you'd like to plug? Feel free to find and follow me on Twitter. I'm at M Thomas Farley. Uh, I tweet about movies sometimes, uh, usually just 
dumb jokes or funny things that my toddler says, but um, you might find something interesting there if you want to reach out to me, <laughs> find me out there. Awesome. And you have a letterbox now too, right? I do. I recently started. I, I've had one for a while, but I've recently started to get back into that. So um, I think I am MTF1008 on there. So find me there too. Cool. So as for me, you can follow me on Letterboxd and Twitter at Media Thinkings. Uh, over on Letterboxd, you can see I've been posting, logging a lot of uh, short reviews of the highlights of uh, 2021. And as I said earlier, you could find my best of 2021 list up over there. You could also find a uh, list dedicated to all of the films that we've covered on this show, uh, The Cinema Joes. Um, so you can check that out. That updates after every new episode gets released. You can also uh, follow my work that I do as a podcast editor for thepopbreak.com by clicking on thepopbreak.com and uh, clicking on the podcasts tab over there. Um, I host a podcast called TV Break, which is uh, comes out once a month all about like TV news and reviews. Uh, that's over on Pop Break TV podcast feed. Uh, we've got lots of other stuff um, over on the podcasts feed over there. Um, also, a new podcast that's going to be coming in 2022 uh, that people who listen to this episode might enjoy is me and Pop Break editor-in-chief Bill Bodkin are starting a new podcast that's going to be running once a month on the Breakcast feed uh, called Bill versus the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, and it's going to be me and him watching every Marvel movie that's uh, ever existed, um, at least every MCU oh, movie, wow. because he covers on his podcast, Socially Distanced Podcast, all of the Disney Plus movie, uh, TV shows and some of the movies, but has major gaps in uh, the films that uh, he has seen, given that he has a young daughter, so that kind of ate up a lot of his uh, theater-going experiences uh, for a while. And uh, yeah, so we're going to go through, starting with Iron Man and ending with whatever the newest one is in the fall of next year. Uh, once a month, we're going to be covering it. It's going to be about three or four movies an episode, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So oh, look wow. for that in the new year. Um, and also, as for our show, you can follow our show at Cinema Joes on Twitter and subscribe to us all the places you can get podcasts. I want to thank all of our listeners and, of course, our subscribers as well. Thank you so much for sticking with us. Uh, but for now, this is Justin Mancini for The Cinema Joes, signing off.